It's the Mego Museum Podcast. Scott and Ryan each sold separately. Welcome to the Mego Museum Podcast. Once again, I'm Scott. And I'm Brian. And uh, we've uh, had a bit of a, a strange week. Um, we were planning to make this a strictly vintage uh, show talking about uh, Benjamin's interview with warehouse manager Ray D'Amato and having Benjamin on to talk about it. And of course, in the last seven days, Scott, we have just had awesome news followed by even more awesome news in the world of Remigo, as we like to call it, and we can't not discuss it. Well, no, and uh, I'm sure that everyone would expect that we would be discussing it, and uh, which is totally fine. But it is kind of funny, and it's sort of like this like beautiful problem that we have these days, is that yeah. you know we're we're a retro website, and we want to uh, have podcasts that focus on vintage retro Migo goodness. Yet these people keep coming at coming at us with amazing new Migo stuff. So, so it's a, it's an embarrassment of riches. Mm-hmm. In fact, last Friday I was sitting staring at the Migo Museum blog entry page, thinking, "What can I write about? What should I do today?" And when that press release hit from uh, from Figures Toy Company, yeah, and oh, this will do. Yeah, but uh, let's talk about the more recent news first and work backwards because I'd like to bring Benjamin in to talk about the figures news so he can interpret a little bit of it. Uh, Biff Bang Pow through Entertainment Earth. If if you haven't seen the front page of a blog or a Facebook page, just gave us incredible pre-Toy Fair treats this week with um, the announcement of three additions to their three lines this year. Uh, the first one is the one that excites me probably the most, is that they're doing a playset for Doctor Who. Uh, That's you know, right. A, which, a TARDIS. Which, uh, they're, they're doing a TARDIS playset, which Jason Lindsay had hinted, hinted that they were thinking about doing uh, mm-hmm. in, in our interview with him, and uh, we finally got to see what it is they're coming up with, and uh, it's pretty darn cool. Well, the TARDIS itself is a humongous mm-hmm. challenge, being that it's physically impossible to replicate. Right. Uh, but these guys have done a really top-notch job of at least 
doing something that could have been done in the 70s. I love the fact that it comes with not only the TARDIS console, which a lot of people are looking forward to, but uh, K-9, uh, the Doctor's robot dog companion. Yeah. Yeah, so that's going to be huge. Yeah, this is uh, a they, – and they did a – frankly, it, I mean, you know I – I dabble in playsets myself mm-hmm. a little bit, and yep. um, this Heard is that. this playset. The TARDIS is is exactly what I would have done. Um, and uh, in fact, somebody else had done a custom TARDIS a while ago that was pretty much along the same lines. It's basically, yeah. you know, um, uh, you know, it's a TARDIS telephone booth. So it's you know the it, it's a vinyl box, but then then it it opens up into a display stage, so that you have the interior. Um, of the TARDIS, and uh, and now it's a little bit unclear to me. I don't know if we got any clarification whether or not this it's is vinyl. A, a vinyl set or a sort of a laminated cardboard set, or or, or what they're planning. Uh-huh. Now, Migo used both. Indeed, in in, 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 indeed, yeah, yeah. I mean, both both is 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 perfectly retro um, in that way, and. Uh, Actually, I mean, I would be completely understandable if they if they went with a laminated cardboard um, idea on the TARDIS, just you know, because it, it is a little bit more practical. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's quite a bit of construction going on. It's got the little the little um, half circle floors that open up and fold into the bottom of the playset, and um, it's going to be a nifty little item. It is. I might have to buy two. Uh, just so I can display it both ways. I, I I love the TARDIS. I collect TARDISes. I've got them all over my yeah, office. Yeah. So um, I'm a big fan. But that playset idea is too tempting as it's well. It's going to be so. pretty cool. So and mm-hmm. uh, uh, refresh my memory. When is when is it going to come out? I thought that was fall. I thought that was fall. Yeah, I don't have it in front of me, but I believe so. And then, but something coming sooner is, and this is a lot of people looking forward to, is we've found out what Wave 1 and 2 of Battlestar Galactica are. And um, I don't think anybody guessed one of the figures. Which oh, is, I can guarantee you that, yeah. Yeah, the Android Sisters. And what really kills me, and for those that don't know, the Android Sisters were the four-eyed uh, two-mouthed uh, backup singers. I think they were at the casino in the pilot movie. Okay. Uh, and they were, I can remember they were in all the marketing material for the movie. So I, I find it funny a lot of people don't even remember them because they seem to be in everything that I owned of Battlestar Galactica as a kid other than the action figure line. Well, you know, I'll say that the 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 I I do not explicitly remember them from the show, but there was something about looking at it that seemed very familiar to me. Like I definitely know that I'd seen something like that before, possibly in my nightmares. That's but, true. <clears throat> they were they were definitely in the trading card series. Yeah. Uh, I definitely had them in there. I know they're in the Marvel Marvel Comics adaptation. Um so, uh, it, it's an interesting and bold choice, but of course you're also in that line getting three really amazing, you know, the Starbuck, Apollo, and Cylon. Right. You right. know, they're v- very iconic characters from the show. Yeah, the characters and, have helmets. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I stepped on your toes there. The characters have helmets. That's that's a really nice added touch they didn't have to do. Um, I'm well. I don't know if they didn't have to do it. Um, I would have oh. understood if they hadn't. That's but, true. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely it's, it, it makes it a no-brainer for me to 
to pick them up just because I I love a good helmet for a figure. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 what they showed us, of course, was not actually um, physical prototypes. They they're showing uh, design drawings of the of, of the costumes, um, which which I think is is fine. It's like if the prototypes are not are not ready for prime time, either the licensor hasn't hasn't approved them, or you know you're still working on the details. Um, or you're just waiting just, for Toy Fair. Or, so we so we may see that we may see some physical samples at Toy Fair. We, we're, we're not sure, uh-huh. but um, but the, uh, going back to the Android Sisters, I don't know if you had noticed that uh, Jason Labowitz from from Biff Bang Pow had piped in on the discussion forum, uh, the discussion thread for the for the figures. People were, were questioning the choice of the Android Sister, and he was intimating that 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 was the character that they could get approved now. Uh-huh. And that that they were very very open, and I, if you sort of read between the lines, it seemed like they were quite eager that that if they can get approval on on another character, that the android sister would be bumped um, down to wave two. Right. So so this may this is still sort of in flux. We may because mm. certainly having an Adama uh, or or somebody like that in, in in the first wave, I think I think is probably what everybody. Uh, would prefer including and include, including apparently Biff McPow. So stay tuned to the Mugen Museum because uh, you know again it's we're always grateful that that the people from Biff McPow uh, show up and answer questions and correct uh, information about. You see, I, I, uh, I view the Android Sisters as, as a really nice sign that they're really going to go into character breadth here. Like right. we're going to get a world of Springfield type treatment. So I, I don't take it as a problem. Yeah, because you know, there, there's there's a lot of characters in Battlestar Galactica. It had a it had a large uh, cast. No, well, well, so. look, there's no, there's no doubt about it. But you know, I mean, you know, speaking from my own experience, I mean, Lost had a lot of characters too, and it was a little bit worrying, you know, with some of the character choices that came out in the first wave, because you're like, what if this line doesn't survive? But based on the the feedback that we're seeing, I don't think Battlestar Galactica is going to have that problem because people are really psyched about it. Um, another cool piece of news was that uh, Jason uh, said that they were open to the possibility or were going to look at the possibility of doing some sort of Cylon troop builder type offering. Yeah, um, that's that's pretty cool. That that, that's, it's awesome. an incredibly toyetic line. Um, everybody kind of looks like an action figure on that show. They've got sweeping capes and I, I you know, I, I, I can understand why there's been so many act, uh, Battlestar Galactica action figure lines in the past years. Yeah. Yeah. So no, they look great. Those, those helmets are, are totally hot and, and I don't think the world, uh, will pass on, on another great Cylon figure. So let's load our shelves up with those shiny boys. And then keeping going on the universal track, the uh, the big reveal was the second wave of $6 million man. We all kind of knew that Steve would be in wave one with Bigfoot, who'd already been revealed. But uh, <laughs> predictable, if not wonderful choice. Uh, but wave two is going to com- have his boss, Oscar Goldman, which I could not be more excited about because he has his... What looks like his briefcase. Yes. And if you remember, Kenner sold all of us a doll of a <laughs> middle-aged man by giving him a really cool briefcase. And um, it's really nice to see. And, of course, a fembot, yeah. which, of course, I think kidnapped and terrorized Oscar 10 to 11 times during the series. Great choices. Can't wait to see more waves. Oh, that's um, that, that's going to be really cool, especially at her, her uh, sort of um – 
beige 70s uh, uh, dress outfit that she's wearing. Um, uh, there's something really cool. so 70s about those faceless androids. They were everywhere. They were in Westworld. Yeah. They did them on $6 million Man. They right. did them on, like, uh, you know, even obscure shows like Man Called Sloan had that look. Uh, Doctor Who ripped it off. You mm-hmm. know, it's a very 70s thing that just is uh, is very stuck in that time. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to see. I, I love it. I can't wait to have that. And you're and, so. and you're so right. It's just, I mean, it's kind of hysterical, but like we're all waiting with, with you know, we're on the edge of our seats waiting for this middle-aged balding guy in a plaid <laughs> business suit um, to come. He was under the tree seat. for me, I think, in 77. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah. And I was better for it. It's good stuff. Speaking of yeah. $6 million man. Yeah, we should uh, switch to our subject called Auction Watch, where Scott and I are going to point out an interesting eBay auction once a week. And this one really caught our eye, and I think it may have caught your eye. If not, go down to our forum and check it out, or you can check it out in the podcast's postscript that I'll be uh, adding to the blog. And that is, uh, someone has put up uh, a pair of original Kenner store displays for $6 million man and bionic woman. And they are just awesome. Uh, they are basically four dolls in four different outfits in a plastic dome. That probably the whole thing is probably eighteen inches high by the looks of things. Mm-hmm. And it's just the stuff dreams are made of. You know, we, we're Mego heads, but we're also children of the '70s, so we can respect and understand how cool this item is. And um, I am out of the running for bidding on it. I don't know about you, Scott. My, my first bid was completely just fell flat. Um, but I, th- I'm just more curious how this when what this thing's going to end at now. Um, yeah, I have, I have no idea. I mean, has, has something like this been seen before or not to my knowledge, but yeah. I really, I don't really lurk in the six million dollar man. That gets me in trouble. Yeah, sure. I end up with a boxed basketron, and my wife going, "You need this? Why?" <laughs> so I, I try to keep away from looking at six million dollar man stuff. Gosh, I think, I think if if anything, uh, I, I I can't wait to see some of our uh, customizers put together an eight inch display along the same lines once we get the six million dollar man. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And it's by gonna... the way, which of course reminded me, like, how awesome would it be if we can get an actual astronaut suit for Steve Austin out of Biff Bang Pow? Mm-hmm. That uh, would be a, a, actually quite nice. I mean, like a really good eight-inch Mego astronaut suit would go a long way, especially in my house. Okay, well, let's move on to our next segment and let's take some listener phone calls from two one three four 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 M E G O. This is KISS, each sold separately, and you can put them in any crazy pose you want. Kiss, that's the name, KISS, they may look insane, KISS, it rocks your game, it's KISS. KISS, each 12 and a half inch figure sold separately by Mego. Oh yeah, Mego Museum Podcast, this is Art, and uh, I love your show, and I'm can't wait to see those kiss figures on my shelf they look cool and uh we all thought that uh cptvt cptv we all thought they were gone and out of the migos 
out of the Migo uh, business, but they look like they're back and they're, they got their muscles. They look good, sir. And um, looking forward to Six Million Dollar Man and those guys and Cylons. It's going to be a good year for 2012. You guys are awesome. Okay, bye-bye. Hey guys, this is Tom, uh, better known on the forum as Mittenbox41. I tried leaving a message a few minutes earlier and I got cut off, so uh, I'll give this another shot. I'm uh, going to give you some commentary on my uh, on the uh, KISS announcement out there. Uh, I was really surprised when I heard that. Uh, I, typically in our uh, circle of collectors, we, we don't tend to uh, uh, get a lot of licensed product past us without... Uh, being able to uh, talk about it, discuss it, and speculate on what it's going to look like when it hits the shelves. So the fact that this got through uh, without anyone knowing about it was uh, pretty amazing. I was really shocked. Uh, there wasn't even a pulse out there in the collector community, so it was pretty amazing. Um, upon first seeing the, the initial pictures of the uh, 12-inch figures, I, I was a little concerned because uh, they, uh, the rooted hair looked... Uh, didn't really fit the characters, and uh, they they just basically look like prototypes, which I understand. A lot of times that's what you do when you make announcements. But uh, after I dug a little bit deeper and then someone posted a commercial out on the threads, uh, I noticed that uh, they actually did have styled hair, and the, the, the face paint looked exactly like uh, the Migos from the 70s. So I was really impressed by that. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I'd be curious to know if uh, – Maybe that was something that uh, that they molded from uh, the original uh, Kiss heads, or if they actually used the molds that Migo used. Uh, that'd be a, a curious fact uh, worth sharing. If you guys could find out, uh, they look spot on. So that was very nice. Uh, it, was, it was good to see that. Um, that being said, um, I was a little concerned uh, at the price points for the 12 inches. The 8 inches uh, were fine. I think. Uh, most of us are accustomed now to the $20 price tag, so uh, that, that, that fit in line with uh, what we're seeing in the marketplace. Uh, the 12-inchers, uh, I don't know. That, I was a little bit more concerned about that. Uh, that's getting into D.C. direct territory, and um, that's about third level down from hot toys. Hot toys tend to be about 160 200 bucks. Then you get into Medicom, which is uh, somewhere in the low one, uh, you know, 100 130 Dollar range, and then you have DC Direct toys, which are usually fifty-five, sixty, seventy dollars. So, uh, and with those, you you tend to get uh, some nice packaging, a little bit of uh, uh, something to justify your your purchase. Uh, you get some, you know, a little bit of uh, bells and whistles to go along with the figure, and uh, they give it a nice presentation. So when I saw the uh, when I saw that the figure was just going to be in a clamshell, that that surprised me a little bit. Um, because I didn't feel like that was really giving me enough bang for my buck. Uh, the price points on the uh, KISS figures were a little bit high. I thought the D- getting into the DC Direct territory was a bit much, since they didn't give you really much in the way of packaging. But I, I did like the fact that they uh, they gave us clamshells, because the nice accident from that is now that we, we have uh, – Nico collectors have uh, a resource for their loose 12-inch figures – because uh, I'm quite sure Classic TV Toys will be selling the uh, 
uh, clamshells individually or as a, as a set, maybe like a set of 10 or something like that. So that'll be really nice uh, to get those into our community because now with all our talented folks on, on the forums, uh, they'll have a new format to, correct, to uh, create uh, custom backer cards. So uh, anyone who has a loose 12-inch Mego figure out there will finally be able to uh, put it in packaging that can really make it pop and look nice uh, displayed in their collector room. So uh, I thought that was really nice. Um, overall, I, I just hope the line is really successful. Um, I grew up with KISS. Uh, most kids today don't don't have any idea what it was like to see KISS uh, uh, before anyone knew what they looked like without makeup. So that was it, it was just really an amazing time to be a KISS fan if you grew up with them uh, when they first uh, made it big. Uh, in this country, and uh, so it, it's really neat to see this happening. And I hope the line is successful. And um, well, you know, I guess that's really about all I have to say. Um, you guys are doing a great job, and uh, keep up the good work. And uh, thanks for making us the uh, the best site to be at. And uh, basically, like a home away from home. So you guys take care, and uh, I'll be talking at you. Bye bye. Hello, Scott and Ryan. This is John Mike uh, calling from New York City. Uh, in regards to this week's call-in topic, uh, the new KISS figures coming out, I was forbidden from owning any KISS action figures or memorabilia when I was a kid back in the late 70s, early 80s. My father absolutely would not have anything related to KISS in the house. Not the comic book, not the Migos, no records, nothing. So I think with the uh, announcement that KISS will be coming to the 8-inch Mego-style format, I think it's about time that I bought all four of them, put them in a display box, and put them in my apartment where everyone could see it just to sort of, you know, razz the old man, get him a little angry, a little hot under the collar. Because really, there's nothing he can do about it unless he grabs them and takes them away from me, which I don't think he'll do. But I think it's about time that... Uh, I added KISS to my uh, Remigo collection, even if it's just to, uh, you know, poke my old man a little bit. Now, the BitBank POW news wasn't the only news that we've had in the last seven days. In fact, we've had some pretty huge news coming from a source we weren't expecting, and that is Figures Toys Company, which has also been known as Classic TV Toys, announced last week that they are going to be doing KISS in not only 8-inch format but 12-inch format and several permutations of the band's look over the years. So... In order to fully understand and comprehend how awesome this is, we've brought along uh, World's Greatest Toy author, Benjamin Holcomb, who is an ardent KISS fan. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. So, um, unlike Scott or myself, you are actually a, a, a KISS fan from childhood, I take it. I, I am, and I'm a KISS fan that went through into adulthood when I paid vast amounts of money to, to a scalper to see their 96 reunion tour and seen them many times. It's a great band. Yeah. So are you are, you are pumped about this announcement. I'm over the moon. I just can't believe that you guys didn't know about this. That surprises me. Well, I, we, yeah, that is actually surprising. Did, did you have any indication that this was going to come down, Brian? 
Uh, no, because you know what? I don't have a lot of communication on that level. I will tell you this. Every person I've talked to, barring Castaway, who hasn't told me this, that has produced 8-inch action figures, that is um, MC, uh, Biff Bang Pow, and Heroes in Action even, has told me they've either considered or had meetings with people about KISS. <laughs> and the biggest barrier to entry is it's a huge down payment. Right. So I never thought it would happen. Uh, that wasn't the number $100,000? That's what I heard, and I've also heard fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I think it's probably a hundred thousand guarantee with a fifty thousand dollar down payment, but I right. could be wrong. That would make uh, sense. Now it's it's a surprise that it came from Figures Toy Company, who I didn't know were still in the game. It's it's happy to see them back, and especially with a retooled body. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's not a surprise in one way because we really didn't have a lot of communication with those guys. We always used proxy and then that sort of thing. So um, it's a it's a pleasant one, and I'm, I'm amazed that they kept this so tight to their chest. Like they they're going to have product out in 30 days. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. That, that that that's one of the things that, that that really impressed me was that was sort of how prepared they were with to go forward with this announcement. It mm-hmm. wasn't just they didn't just announce to the world that you know we got the license for Kiss. They waited until they had like finished prototypes and you know some sort of I mean a, a deadline for when they would be in the stores <laughs> and they're all set to go. And uh, the stuff looked great. Yeah, it, um, it, it it really did. And um, you know, of course, you know, Figures Inc. has been around for a long time. Um, first as as sort of a reseller of stuff. I remember buying you know old. Migo store stock from them back, back yeah, in the nineties, and, and then they went into the action figure business. They were the first people to to duplicate in some way the Migo Type Two body, um, and you know to varying degrees of, of success as far as that goes. But they certainly did generate a lot of product. Well, you, do you remember their eight inch figures they did in the nineties, the Three Stooges? Yes. Yeah, they were even in kind of. Uh, Ursat's Mego window boxes. Right. So those guys have been at it a long time. They did quite a few Mego style licenses. Or I don't know if they're licenses, maybe they're public domain. Didn't they, or were they, or, or were they someone different? Oh no, they as as classic TV toys. Yeah, they they took yeah. on a number of license uh, well, entities. They expanded Happy Days, and they did Married with Children, and okay. and I Love Lucy. Um, now I never had a single one of those, so I'm, I, I, I can't speak honestly on that. But I'm gathering that there were issues with the body quality. Yes. Yeah. yeah. To say to say the least. Um, um, uh, people will tell you some of their bodies, like you know, like oh, well, the glow body was of better quality than the other body, and you know, there's a lot of variation with that. I think their their original bodies were made in India, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they were one of the first companies to jump on the Indian manufacturing, especially with plastics and toys that I knew of. Right. And I guess, you know, there were some some pitfalls to that. You know, mind you, I I had some lines like the Munsters that I thought were just absolutely fabulous, like some of their best work. Yes. Um and of course, you know, it's hard to find the Munsters now, so I think a lot of people agreed. Um, but yeah, I had some space 1999 that had some quality control issues and, you know, these, uh, it it was kind of a, it was kind of a mixed bag to be honest with you, but it was an amazing breadth of product they put out. But what we're hearing now is that, is that they've, they've got a new, a new body tool and that it's going to be manufactured in China. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
and let the games begin. And they've duplicated the they, they've they've tooled out a 12 inch body, which is a huge huge deal. Oh yeah, and they're they're already available for sale. I ha- I haven't ordered one yet, but I can't wait to see the reviews coming in on those because yeah. it looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the eight inch Kiss line looks great. I this is what kisses to me i'm not so much into the music but i mean they had a marvel comic when i was a kid uh the the peer pressure of of being in the third grade everybody being into kiss and i think that's the year that that movie kiss meets the phantom of the park came out which what's that 1978 i think 78 yeah i viewed them in the same way i do reb brown as captain america or (laughs) You know, they were kind of like this superhero-y, cool guy thing. And so when I get those 8-inch Kiss figures, I am going to take the classic TV toys werewolves, repaint them, and make them look like those robots they fight. (laughs) And the imminently unwatchable Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park, yeah. 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 It's it's so interesting. To to your question... Ben, um, I mean, Brian and I were, I guess, we're both kind of the same way in that, that I never connected with the Kiss thing. I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was raised in a, how my mother listened to, to uh, Julie Andrews music. My dad was into country western. So, I mean, I, aesthetically, I never had a chance with those people. Yeah, but, I got the Tom Jones and the Roger Miller over yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, so all yeah, all my little friends, you know, at school were really, really, really into Kiss, and for some reason, I could never, I could never make that leap. I mean, I sort of saw that they were cool. I guess they kind of scared me a little bit too. They were that's part, that's part of the thrill, though. Is yeah, the scaring aspect of it when you're when you're six, the blood, the fire, the spectacle. Yeah, uh, I don't think anyone, even even like serious Kiss fans aren't going to die on the hill of, of whether or not they're great musicians. I mean, it wasn't yeah. just about music for kids. I mean, they're decent players. They wrote, they wrote good, you know, good pop songs basically right. with sure. guitar, but that's not the spectacle. That's not what it's about. It really is about when, when it went from them being rock and roll, smoking, drinking, partying to being on lunch boxes that it, it all it all changed, and they, they it wasn't about the music; it was about the characters and the iconography that Gene and Paul created. So it Unexpected. was banned. It was banned in my house. You just reminded me because the whole knights and Satan service, oh, and yeah. spitting blood. My folks just bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And uh, when I turned like seventeen or eighteen, I started you know doing all that stuff that was forbidden. As a kid, and I bought a whole whack of Kiss albums, and the only thing I remember really getting uh, into was an appreciation for Ace Frehley, mm. because I thought he was actually a pretty talented musician. He was, yeah, no, he was. He was great. He always he had a great line at one point when they did a a Kiss tribute album, where other hipster bands like indie and all bands sort of was was it the Kiss My Ass one of those that they asked Ace if if he had any idea that he was going to have such an influence on modern rock artists. And he said, well, if I had, I would have practiced a lot more. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, you know that you just reminded me too, that there, it was, it was contentious in our house as well because of some of the imagery that they did. And I have a, a very specific memory of, um, not an outright ban in the house, but a definite discouragement specifically from the back cover of, 
I want to say Cream magazine, but it might have been a different uh, title. But it was a magazine, and on the back was a photo of Kiss sort of sprawled around, around looking like Roman emperors with half-naked women laying around them, and the, they all had lash marks bleeding lash marks nice. on their bodies and every maybe not every member now I, I haven't seen this picture for 30 years but at least one of the members of kiss was holding a whip and my mother saw that and lost her mind she was like <laughs> it's not coming in the house ever again i hope you enjoyed your time with kiss because it's over oh wow yeah. i can uh, i i well good for you mom it was have a little bit of respect for women. This is not this is not respectful at all. This is this is hideous. And here's why: I think it was more of a, a teaching point than a Bible thumping. Like this is out of the house now. It was right. you understand why this is disturbing, right? And here's why. Yeah. So so but yeah, so getting back to the figures though, like like as a Migo guy, um, like were, ki- were 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 Kiss Migo figures something that you you would have been all over? I was, and and, and it's funny that. I was never able to find as a kid the two what I what I what I would think are the two most popular at least for figures I would think that Gene and Ace would be the most desirable and the few times that I got to go out specifically shopping with my mother for those I only ever found Paul and Peter so the the very eff- effeminate frontman and the sort of drunk gangster drummer and so those were the only two I ever had. And I never, never really loved them. I always pined for the Ace and Gene figures. Um, but none of my friends actually had the Migo figures. I mean, I knew about them and I was looking for them. Yeah. But I never, I never got it. I only had those two. And I think I had them up until a couple of years ago when I finally sold them at a, at a toy show. Um, but for me to be able to have Gene and Ace... I don't even know that... I, I don't know if I'll buy all of them, but I know I'm going to buy those two. Are you going to buy the twelve inch or the eight inch? I don't know. See, I, for me, probably. like, like if they came, if they came out with the twelve inch, like I wouldn't necessarily be over, you know, because I'm just not that into Kiss. But yeah. I, I fully recognize how cool it is to have, you know, uh, eight inch Kiss that's you know the same species as my Mego Superman. Totally. Um, you know, says so I. Well, let me be honest with you. If it's going to come down to like, I think. Some of the quality control. I I, I don't want to offend anybody, but I was not happy with the quality of the Mattel figures. I didn't like the posture that they had. Yeah. They, were, they were poorly constructed. And given their genesis from Dr. Migo, who did beautiful, incredible stuff that was spot on, that to me was such an epic fail of quality that uh, I, that was frustrating. I don't know that that had any impact on... The, the, the line or the shortness of the line, but I got to wonder about that because every time I got one, I just had this profound sense of disappointment that this isn't very well constructed. And if that's already the buzz going into the KISS stuff, um, that doesn't bode well. Yeah, for me, you know, I think, though, I haven't – I've seen a lot of KISS merchandise. I've never seen really, really crappy KISS merchandise. Like they have a standard of quality, I like to think. Um, you guys could disagree with me, but most of the stuff I've seen looks like there's been some sort of um, some sort of testing done to it. So I'm I'm hopeful that uh, the same will bode with these figures. I hope so. But that, are we now getting into the minutia of what 
geeks and toy people respond to. Like if Gene Simmons is sitting there in his house, now newly married to Shannon Tweed, is he looking at a slightly bent over figure and saying, this is not good enough? He might be saying, this is fine. Yeah, that's true. Well, I, you know what? Time will tell. I, yeah, I think I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards the positive. Um, I, I will. I, yeah, I think it, I think they're going to be great. And um, are you are you looking forward, Ben, to the other permutations? Like they want to do. Um, oh, forgive dress, me. They want to do dress, dress to kill. kill. Yeah. Some other, some other stuff. Um, I think I would be on board with the majority of Kiss fans that no one's that excited about a Tommy Thayer doll. So, um, not. I I don't know about this new the new iteration of Kiss. Oh, I, I see. Yeah. Because the new one that they're talking about would be the new lineup. So uh, Eric and Tommy are the current members of Kiss, but I can't imagine anyone really wants those. Um, but I would think that, especially the early stuff, is going to resonate. So like Dress to Kill, uh, and this this original the ones that harken back to the the Mego seventy eight, uh, which is kind of Destroyer, but maybe I don't know. I'm not, I don't know. Mego had a slight variation on that the, those costumes, and they changed those costumes. So fast. I mean, it's like it, you get one album and the next one would come out so quickly, and they already had different outfits. And then it got to Dynasty, uh-huh. and suddenly they were furry and 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 tinfoily and very very different. Um, but there's some fan favorite stuff there. Dress to Kill. I'm not sure they wear suits and clogs on Dress to Kill. Yeah, kind of want okay. the suits. Yeah, I, no. think, I, I think that's going to be that looks pretty cool to me. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. They're not really they're they're, they're you know I actually did a little bit of poking around online today because I wanted to see what, what a regular, what KISS fans were having to say. So I oh. stopped in on a couple of KISS forums, um, you know, because it's like, who knows? Like, how are these, you know, the, the retro Mego look, how is it appealing to people who aren't necessarily into these toys to begin with? Um, universally positive seemed to be the reaction I was seeing. Good. Um, you know, there was like a 15-page thread I found on one of the KISS forums that <clears throat> I would say 95% was really positive. Um, although one of my favorite comments was, was awesome, cheap KISS crap that looks like old cheap KISS crap. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the internet. As far, as far as the retro thing goes. But yeah. um, there was a lot of griping, or there was some griping that, that they were going with the 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 – the, the names, the Demon and Starchild and Spaceman and Catman, as oh. opposed to, you know, it's not, they're not billing it as, you know, Peter Chris or... or you know what, though? Now that you mention that, that might come back to the current iteration. Uh-huh. So if I were Gene Simmons, I would want to get away from the name Ace Fraley that I don't ever want to pay out again. Right. Peter Chris that I never want to see again. Right. And I just wanted to say... This is the brand. The identity is the star child. The identity is the demon. Doesn't that's, matter. That's what I got from that. Part. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, this, that makes sense. Uh, listen, I didn't answer your question. I know I'm going to get, for the 12-inch ones, I know I'm getting Gene and Ace. That's a lock. Because yeah. I never had him as a kid, and, I, and even though these aren't Migos, I'm still going to enjoy that aspect. And 100% I'm going to get all four of the original 8-inch. Um, if they're if they're good, if they're like Doc Migo quality bodies, then I'm in for probably any uh, any costume design they do, except for modern lineup with Tommy and Eric. That doesn't interest me. I didn't even know who they were. Um, I'm down for a set of eight inch, like I mentioned. The only reason I'm not down for a set of twelve inch is 
even though I'm not that big a fan, I do own an original Mego set. Yes. Um, and that Ooh. is all because at eight years old, or I guess nine years old, walking down the stairs into a Zeller's toy department, I saw a guy stocking them on the shelf. Oh. I freaked out, ran to my mother, and I'll <laughs> never forget. You know, I, I don't quite remember it, but it's like, your father would kill you. And that was it, you know. Um, oh, so you didn't, you didn't get them that day? I did not get them that day. Because she just knew that Kiss was totally banned in our house, and um, I couldn't pull it off, man. I, I was I was pretty good, but that one I couldn't get. And I'm happy to even say that two of my Kiss dolls are in the original Canadian packaging. Sweet. So hey. it's you know what victory is mine. Um, I never Brian, paid a lot either. So Brian, may I just say you have the best memories. Whenever you share stories like specific vivid imagery of going downstairs into Zellers, it's, it's so. So vivid, I can go there with you. I love it. <laughs> I just, I just wish you know that my memory still worked. I can't find my car keys ever. So uh, it worked. It worked from about seventy four to about eighty four. Then it died. Well, we remember the important things. Like kiss. What's that? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. It if, worked until about eighty four, and then it died. Or next when, when, when did Lick It Up come out? Lick It Up. Yeah. Oh, God, you're going to pop quiz me on Kiss stuff? Uh, no, I just remember I was like, oh, my God, what is this? Like, oh, God, Lick It Up must have been like, <laughs> Kiss fans will kill me, maybe 83. I, I, oh, yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head. I think the first uh, time I actually got to see them, originally I was supposed to see them in 78 at Kobo Arena with Cheap Trick opening. So my friend Mike Gustafson, who's crazy stoner single mother, got three tickets, and he invited me, that was where my parents stepped in and said, not on your life. You're not going yeah. to the show. And yeah. I've never forgiven them for that, quite frankly. Um, I, I was supposed to go see them open for um, Great White? No, not Great White. I can't remember. Dave Coverdale's band uh, in 1990, and my friend gave my ticket. White Snake? White Snake, yes. Uh, my friend gave my ticket to a girl he liked. Wait, there's no way that Kiss was opening for White Snake. They opened for White Snake. What? Maybe, maybe it was the other way around, but there's no. No, way. sir. They opened Kiss for stopped, White Kiss Snake. Kiss stopped opening for people in about '75, and they never opened for anyone after that. I assure you. Uh, my, fr I, I remember it, and the reason I remember it is that Kiss played a, a shorter set. Maybe, maybe it was one of those things where they rotated the open. Oh, that could be. That would be used to be though. What my friend told me was was Kiss completely outclassed White Snake. They got the they got the audience going, and when White Snake came on, they couldn't keep the momentum going. They they ground to a halt because Kiss played a very tight, high energy set and left. Yeah, and, um, you know this was this was a, a weird time for the band too. So like 1990, I think is when they released that Forever song. Oh yeah, that yep that was. Uh... A yeah. ballad written by the big ballad writer. I can't remember his name. Yeah. David yeah. something. Um, yeah, that's painful. I, yeah. My <laughs> first my first tour with them was 85, I think. Hot, Maybe Hot in the Shade, something like that. Okay. My, my older brother took him for his birthday. And, um, it's just not the same. I mean, to, it, it, when you had a, a shot at seeing them in their heyday, full yeah. music, full everything, with... Cheap Trick, arguably one of the greatest garage bands in the history of music, opening. That, oh, that's painful. That's a painful yes. memory. <laughs> or lack of memory. 
Well, so my, well, yeah, my only memory of, of of Kiss that I really have is the is is the that TV special, the Phantom of the. What was it? The Phantom of the Amusement Park. Phantom of the Park. Yeah. No, I re- no. The thing I remember about that was like I was in sec- first or second grade, maybe third grade. I think third grade. Pro- yeah. Maybe third grade, but I definitely remember like all week long at school, all the kids were buzzing about this show that was going to be on. Oh yeah. Um, you know, because it's you know, I mean, you know how like important a TV special was back then. It was like, oh my god, there's going to be a Kiss TV special. And like we all got together. And I remember vividly, I was at my friend William Miller's house and we were playing Star Wars like really, really hard. And then, because <laughs> I think it came on Friday night. So you know, it's like we were you know sailing you know, X-wing fighters around the living room and out in the backyard and stuff like that. And then we all settled down to, to watch this show. And I was just like, okay, guys, whatever. But um, I just like that you said you were playing Star Wars really hard. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even know what that means, but it's really funny. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you know what? what same about. thing, Buzz in the Schoolyard. And I think there's, there's four or five TV specials that came on in my youth where a kid would come running to me after school and say, you know, Godzilla versus the thing is on at five o'clock or, or, Something to that to that effect, and I, that was one of them. Kiss meets the Phantom of the Park was uh, mm-hmm. Brian tonight. Kiss meets the Phantom on TV, and I had no idea what that meant. And yeah, I, yeah, I was. You know, there. the other uh, the other big moment in TV uh, that time frame for me was when um, Mork that would ultimately <laughs> be on Mork and Mindy was on an episode of Happy Days. Oh, yeah. Guys, remember that? Yeah, yeah. So I think if my memory serves, it was before this, like the show. So he was like a character, right? Okay, so I remember being exhausted. This would have been probably around that same time, 77, 78. And I remember fighting some kind of sickness, so having to take a nap and leaving very explicit instructions for my parents to <laughs> get me up to see this. Important that you know, is. Then, then you know, the, you hear the, the rooster going off, and it's the next morning. I'm like, "What the hell happened?" And I come in, and I'm like, "What? What are you? This is before VHS, and of course, it airs once, and you've got a you got one shot at this." Uh, and my mother's like, "I came in, wake up, and and asked you if you wanted to get up, and you you said you were tired. Like, that's no excuse." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like throwing my parents under the bus here. I love my parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sure, but every, you know, all parents make horrible, horrible yeah, but come on, man. scar you for the rest of your life. What are you going to do? That's yeah, true. You, you missed a happy days. My God. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, Lord, are you kidding? I remember. <laughs> now we're just getting off in the weeds here, but yeah, like, yeah. you know, I remember having uh, you know some sort of some sort of behavior issue that my mother wanted to correct, and so. You know, we had like a, a, a list of like, well, if you do this wrong, then you're going to lose, you know, TV time. And Ooh. so and I remember, yeah, yeah, I know. And I remember like plotting out the whole week just to make sure that I didn't miss Welcome Back Cotter. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, I got I to I be good on Wednesday or Thursday or whatever it was. Every, Rest in peace, Epstein. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Every, every summer when I'd come home from the last day of school, my parents would be unplugging the television and rolling it into a closet. Really? Because we had TV-less summers. Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. cool. That's, you know, I don't remember putting up much of a fight because we only got like four channels and it was all reruns. Saturday right. mornings were kind of bumpy, but 
it wasn't too bad. Yeah, but even even during the summer, all those cartoons you'd seen fourteen times during the weekend or during the yeah year anyway. And and I had friends with televisions, so it wasn't that bad. Well, I missed most of the '80s television or the early '80s. I'm at some point it must have been eighty eighty one. Our family tell because back then you had one TV, one Mm -hmm. giant clickety clockety, no remote control beast in your living room. That died, and it must have been around 80 or 81, because I never got to see MTV. And it died, and my parents just said, we're not replacing it. Like, you don't go, which was good, because I ended up going off into the living room and drawing and being creative, because I didn't have it. But it also created that voracious appetite for pop culture and media that lives on. Yeah, actually, the same thing happened to me. My folks moved in my last year of high school out into the sticks, and we didn't have any channels. Mm. So when I my first year of college, I just I think I actually dug up the cable and buried it under the rug and put it into my room. Brilliant. And the next year, I drilled a hole in the wall. Uh, <laughs> I, I picked the room right next to the, the the common area and drilled a hole right through the wall uh, because I I. I like you, I got a voracious appetite for pop culture, having been cut off from it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Now you're reminding me of my father, when I was a kid, lived in Alaska. And, and back in the, in, the, in, the, in the 80s, there was only one channel in Alaska. Like for the whole, the whole state was served by a satellite. It was run by the state of Alaska. And they would basically pick and choose whatever they wanted from all of the TV networks in the United States. So it was this one channel... But it had, like, you would watch, you know, the Dukes of Hazard, and then Charlie's Angels, you know, it was like CBS, ABC, NBC, um, all sort of on this, like, weird mashup mix rotation. Um, sounds like Canadian networks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But anyway. Um, so, getting back to Migo. Yeah, this was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Was awesome. Well, it's, it's, it's a normal uh, conversation uh, hijacking there, because it went from kiss to television kiss meets the phantom off to things that we missed right and what time airings you know yeah oh well i mean it it was a huge problem that that you know six million dollar man i never got to watch as much because i i believe it was either on the same time as either the waltons or little house on the prairie or something that my mom wanted to watch so i i didn't have it was hard for me to get to watch six million dollar man same problem with battlestar galactica Oh, yeah. and, and I remember fighting uh, with my mom to watch Speed Racer cartoons, mm. which were on at the same time as John Chancellor's NBC Nightly News. So, you know, Wait, you it was cart- hard growing up in the 70s. You had cartoons yeah. on at night? Well, it was like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, it was like a, a, a syndication out of L.A. And uh, all my friends watched Speed Racer, and it was really, really important. And we had to watch John Chancellor every night. Oh, so I know. I know. So that's rough. Smell the shag rug and misery. Yeah. <laughs> and now I'm carrying around a copy of Star Wars on my iPhone. I mean, yeah. You know, did you guys actually like this? Is this is off topic? But real quick, did you guys actually like Battlestar Galactica back in the day? I did not. I, mean, I, I did. I did. I, I, I yeah. I had the toys and uh, and I remember. So did I. I had such a I, – I, I mean, really, it was – I, I loved it because I loved Star Wars, and I wanted more Star Wars, you know, so that was as close as I could get. But that's not really answering the question. That's yeah. you sort of – Oh, did I – well, first, like, I'm saying, did you actually go, this is good, fun television? 
I was into it at the time. Absolutely. I couldn't get into it. It went over my head a little bit in terms of, of like, you know, I just wanted to see people shoot things. Yeah. Um, I really liked Buck Rogers. Yes. And this is kind of embarrassing, but I loved Galactica 1980. I never missed one. Where they, sh- they showed up on Earth? Oh yeah, yeah. And, you know it's 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 pain. It's on Netflix now, and it's it, I so they, they did a different one. show after Battlestar that was called yeah. Eighty. This is really getting crazy. Basically, they wanted to do a second season of Battlestar, but you know there had to be several changes to it because of you know the, the budget and the, there's long essays about it. The original treatment, believe it or not, became Quantum Leap. Awesome. Um, oh, cool. Great show. They were going to do this whole Galactica time travel thing. What they ended up doing <laughs> was Galactica comes to Earth and hilarity ensues. There's. I remember it's, that. It's, I mean, didn't they have like little colonial motorcycles that they rode around? They the flew, yeah. Yeah, yeah they did. And they had to hide and, in the bushes. I think I, I, the one I was trying to watch recently was like a Cylon kidnaps Wolfman Jack. <laughs> and I, the, the first 20 minutes were great and i was actually talking to jason Lindsay, and i said hey you know this isn't as bad as i remembered and he went is that one where the, where the mic the, the microwave blows up the the cylon and sure enough the cylon walks into a halloween party and i think it's william daniels is making chili or something <laughs> It's like, oh, you know, I spoke too soon. You know, this is terrible. So I, I love that the, the Cylon kidnaps could be like its own internet meme. Like, yeah. is that the thing where the Cylon kidnap Wolfman Jack? Is that <laughs> That's ridiculous. I think you had to have Wolfman Jack on a show if you were on ABC. Hey, you guys. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to. We're, We're gonna, have gonna to run move this along a little bit. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so I hate I, I hate to be so abrupt, but I'm getting. You know what? Signal. My wife's due home in half an hour. You're right. Okay. <laughs> you can you can delete all of it for the actual podcast, and this is just a fun three way conversation. That's true. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Well, listen. So let's let's. So it's been fun talking about Kiss, but one of the the original reason to to have Ben on. Not that we ever need a reason to have Ben on. But um, so uh, we did that interview with you several months ago, and you had mentioned that you were going to send along some interviews that you had done in preparation for your book for World's Greatest Toys, interviews with Mego employees. And um, I apologize it took me so long to get around to, to doing the editing, but uh, I did edit down your interview with Ray D'Amato, who was the tell, – tell us a little bit about Ray D'Amato. And um, I, I, I could introduce him, but maybe it'd be better if you did that. Uh, Ray worked at the original, well, not original, but at the Bohemia Long Island, New York warehouse for Mego from, I think it was 76 to around 81. Um, it's one of the original people brought in to fulfill orders when they moved up, oper- when Mego moved operations from some rental unit, evidently, in LA uh, to the East Coast where they could. Fulfill all, all the big orders. Right, and how did you? And how, how did you originally get in touch with him? He was selling see. stuff on eBay, wasn't he? Well, it was. It was not him directly. It was. It was. Uh, I think I want to say Bill Brandt, but I, I, I'd have to go through my notes. But okay. that's. I think it was a the son of a guy named Bill Brandt, who was the foreman of the warehouse. So I think. 
I'd reached out to him, found out that it was it was his dad had worked at Migo, called him, and he's like, his response was, I don't remember anything. I'm so bad with memory, but this is the guy you need to talk to. And that was Ray D'Amato. Okay. So I had several interviews with him, but th- this is one that was recorded. And as, uh, and as our listeners will, will, will soon learn, if you wanted somebody who remembered stuff, Ray D'Amato was a guy to talk to. You're not kidding. He's so smart, and his memory is astonishing. When you hear him just ramble off numbers like they were yesterday, and you're talking about 30 years ago. Right. I mean, I was immer- at the time I was immersed. So a little, little backstory here is that this interview happened in April of 2005. So this was less than a year uh, after Rob Chatlin and I conceived the idea of the book. So it was all still very new and, and exciting. Um, and this guy, his, his, his memory and his ability to rattle stuff off, like there's, I was listening to the playback on the interview when I sent it to you, and I got one of the item numbers wrong in, in rambling it, and, and he got everything right. Yeah. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. And so um, in, in listening to the interview, it seems like you discovered a lot of things, but one of the... There, there's a point early on in the interview where he starts telling you about the the five digit codes, mm. and and you can hear the light bulb go off in your head. And yeah, that's a good that's a good point because that was such a revelation. Um, at that time, I'd already started this document, this giant um, X Y axis chart, down one side being every superhero that Migo produced. And across the y axis or x axis being all uh, uh, the top, the chronology, mm-hmm. and then just trying to fill in those blanks for when the packaging variations happened, when the transition from type one to type two. It's listening back now. I have the curse of knowledge, where you know these things now. So to ever think about the time when you didn't know them is slightly comical. And when I yeah, when I listen back and I, you can hear my voice. I sound like a little kid. I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, you, you just get so excited about this stuff. And that was a huge, for me, that was a huge revelation because it, it gave me a, a really big pin to put on that document um, of, a, of a line in the sand that uh-huh. I didn't have before that. Because it gave you it gave you information about about when because you, you it seemed like you were uh, a lot of information you were trying to get out of Ray was about um, what characters were popular what characters did he remember that were not selling as you're trying to piece together like you know why are you know why did Aquaman disappear for a while or or what happened you know to absolutely just... and he was such a good sport um, you know there there are points there where I felt like a lawyer coercing him like Spider Con Buggy Spider Man <laughs> you know what I'm talking about is that the one and, and and he was a great he was a great sport about it, but um, yeah, this at the time I didn't know very much, and it was a lot of blank space on this huge chart, and so just to be able to draw a line on it and say everything to the right happened after 1975 was a big starting point. So any package that started with the number five that's a superhero, just to know I can put it over there at the time that was a big revelation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there, there, Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, there's there, uh, there's no doubt that um, I I think to a lot of people listening, you know, listening to this conversation or listening to this interview, it seems really esoteric. But um, but but some of this stuff is so, it's so amazing to hear somebody talking about being there firsthand and just um, uh, one of the parts I loved when he's he's talking about uh, oh you know well we would send you know. 
so much stuff to Kmart and so much stuff to Montgomery mm-hmm. Wards, and then you have you know the two guys and the, you know the 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 mom and pop organization, you know stuff like this, and just this just picturing all of these cases of superheroes being mm. distributed across the country and coming out of this warehouse, or or when they talk about um, you seemed really interested in the fact that at the warehouse they would occasionally repackage cases of figures. Yeah, I did. I, I kind of obsessed on that. Um, the counter display boxes, the figures. Uh, some of that has to do with just the, the topical stuff. Like I was on about things like were there any tape on the boxes. That is rooted in the fact that at the time, in 2005, there was this really strange glut on eBay of mint in box Mego heroes yeah. that had scotch tape on them. It was the weirdest thing. It just all of a sudden they were prevalent. They were everywhere. Yes. I, I'm, I mean, at this point, I can only conclude that it's the stuff that came out of Parkdale because Morris Kotzer and those guys would put tape on them. I could tell you that right now because I have some original stuff I got right from Parkdale, and it does have that tape on there. Yeah. So that's probably the source of that. But it's like for poor Ray listening to me ask these inane questions, he must be like, what about? But at the time, I was trying – You know, I, I had been in discussions uh, with other collectors, and that was a big point of contention. Like is this original? Is this from Mego? Or is this added after the fact? Right. Uh, that it came from the, just the Canadian – Warehouse is sort of right down the middle. It's it's not here or there. It's still legitimate. Came from the distributor, not the manufacturer. But those. So I guess my point is that some of the things that I'm pressing are slightly more topical issues. Right. Right. Um, so what were some things that uh, that that did, did did your interview with Ray send you off into new directions? What were some things that like was there a particular vein of gold that you were able to pursue or or did he was he able to introduce you to other people that you got to talk to he did yeah he actually gave me other names that he'd actually given me before and and subsequent to that too he gave me a lot of, of names and numbers um for people to track down <laughs> actually I'll, I'll share this with you because this is the perfect place to, to do this um not everybody want and you guys have tracked people down and interviewed <laughs> Tons of both of you have done this. And, and so you get the very different reactions when you find somebody. Um, but the funniest one that I have to share with you, and I, I won't say who it is. It doesn't matter. But it was I tracked down a former Mego employee and got his wife on the phone. And I started did the rambling setup of who I am and what I was hoping to accomplish and how much I'd love to speak to him. And her response was, if you find him, tell him his kids miss him. Oh! oh. <laughs> I just remember this stunned silence on, on, on the phone. I was like, okay. You're probably not going to find that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so you get those. Yeah. And then you get someone like Ray D'Amato who is just... Oh, amazing. He's got that brilliant Long Island accent and just a real uh, passion for it. He obviously loved what he, what he was doing. Um, and it just it, it stuck in it. All, the, all that information stuck in his brain is marvelous. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool as, as somebody who has tracked those folks down before, I can appreciate just that he has knowledge of something other than 
Wizard of Oz and Cher. Yeah, right? Right. Because so many people I talked to were like, you know, Cher was a big celebrity at the time. So they, that's obviously something that's, you know, they think is going to be, um, you know, what I want to hear. And then it's really like, you know, no, I, I want to hear about C.B. McCall and, and <laughs> comic action heroes. And they just kind of, oh, that, yeah, I don't remember that. You know? you know, Brian, you're touching on something interesting here because if you consider um, how, and you'll hear in the interview, how Ray can rattle off 1310, 1311 as the assortments, um, which is just an, an, uh, uncanny. Consider that level of detail and recollection. And then when I mention things like ISIS, Teen Titans, he's got nothing. Yeah. I, you know, I, the great white shark, Aquaman, he's like, I, you're talking about a different language, a different company. I have no idea what you're on about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that's I mean, interesting. Things that, you know, like the, the, he, he remembers, you remember the things that were a problem. He remembers the Grand Prix racing coming, yep. you know. Because it, it all came back, it didn't work, and nobody nobody liked it. And then he mentions the the exploding corn syrup on the on the stretchy heroes. Yep. The only thing he didn't mention that I'm aware of that was a similar failure was the Micronauts rocket tubes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that's that was interesting. He didn't bring that up. That might have happened. At no, Stormlight. he would have been there for that. He yeah. would have been there for it for sure. Yeah. He was actually. I mean, he didn't seem to. Um, because everybody else has always said, "Oh, Micronauts were so huge," but they didn't seem to make, have made that much of an impression on him. It, it almost took a little prompting, as I recall. Like hey, they yeah. made a lot of this, they did a lot of this. He's like, "Yeah, you know, I mentioned it. There, there were those." Um, but part of that too was just me trying to get a sense of the scope of the heroes, because Migo was so um, um, <sighs> prolific in their output with so many different licenses. I wanted to sort of have a sense of what was, you know, in trying to write a book about heroes, like what was the impact that heroes had? So when he would say statements like, yeah, I don't think anything ever, you know, o- overshadowed the heroes, things like that. That was yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, now, at the, at the the interview unfortunately cuts off uh, towards the end, just as you guys are starting to talk about uh, Heroes World. Do yeah. You, do you recall? Is there anything you want to add that you re, that you recall from 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 the end of no, the interview? I can say that he didn't know anything about Heroes World, and I don't remember um, what would have followed. But I I believe it would have been a quick wrap wrap up because I would have known that the digital recorder had stopped. Right. Probably would have worked toward quickly winding it down. And it's a pretty long chat. It is. And, he, and I remember uh, when I when I did it, uh, even though it was April, it was blistering hot in L.A. And it was so hot, and I I wanted to not have a horrible recording, so I shut myself in my own room. (laughs) And I'm I'm, I'm that whole interview, not to draw a horrible portrait for you guys, but I'm sitting in that room in my shorts with nothing else on, no fan on, (laughs) sweating balls talking to this guy because I don't want the fan to make unnecessary noise. I wanted to try to capture this thing. I I didn't know how good the playback was going to be on this thing. so. So probably the reason the recording cuts off is you passed out. I might have passed out. <laughs> might have. Passed, you passed out in your own room with a digital recorder in your hands. How, who hasn't done that, though? Or it's possible that a Cylon kidnapped me. That is but very possible. Sure. Hey, that's some good callback. LA. That's right. It's L.A. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, Listen, thank you so much for passing this on to us. Hey, one, other, one other quick thing, though. I, 
there's a mention on there of Izzy, but I don't know that there was any sort of background on that guy. Does, is that in the interview who Izzy is? Not sure. Or was? Not sure. Because I just very quickly, I just remember it was a nice story. It might have been from an earlier interview with him, but other people had mentioned this person too, that there was some guy named Izzy who owned a very small toy store in New York City, like in Manhattan. And he was beloved by the Mego executives. And so his name came up in the context of um, doling out figures when the demand was high and the supply was low. Ah. He was one of those guys. And he, I think in the interview there, he mentions other bigger chains who get um, priority over receiving stock, receiving inventory. Right. There's one guy that's mentioned. His name is, is Izzy, and I can't remember the name of the store that he ran. But apparently he was so beloved that people who worked at Mego would drive into the city to, to, or drive to his location to give him a case of figures if he needed them. Wow. Wow. Loved this guy. <laughs> and I just, when you talk about this global massive company that Mego became, I'm always touched by those little tiny stories of how much they really loved this one shop guy and always made sure he had plenty of figures on hand for his kids. Oh, that's Funny. a cool story. That's a that really is really cool. cool. God. Yeah, all right. It's great to talk to you guys. Good having you on, yeah, sir. Yeah, again, thanks so much. Um, and we're going we're gonna to wrap this up so we can get on, get on to the interview. And, um, you know, once, I think the interview is a, like about 45 minutes long, so uh, pace yourself, folks. But it's totally worth the trip down memory lane. Um, if we can, I think we, we've got some photos of the Mego warehouse that we'll post on the blog. Uh, mm-hmm. to go along with this so you can sort of visualize uh, what he's talking about. And um, thanks so much for, com- for stopping by and, 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 and schooling us about, about KISS as well. Hey, if you want the best, you got the best. How's the band world? KISS. I'm excited about those. We'll see how that works out. I'm, I'm very excited. Cool. Cool. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's a good time to be a Migo fan. We always say that, but it's still true today. If you look at the the front page of the Mega Museum, there's an announcement of four different toy lines coming out this week. Wow. So, As, as one person <laughs> wrote on Facebook, bye-bye, money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I, you know, I've, done, I've done a massive sell-off of, of all kinds of toys and stuff, but this is just going to pull me right back in. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good, it's good to be spending a little bit of time talking about the vintage stuff as well. Um, cause that is, is, that remains our primary purpose. I, I like to think. So right what, Brian, why don't we go ahead and wrap this up now and then we'll go right into the interview and, um, and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see y'all in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Okay. Thanks. Until next time, this is, I'm Scott and I'm Brian. We're saying collect them collect all. Them all. And some of them I just wanted to throw in there in case it would jar memory uh-huh. or whatnot. I figured it'd be, I would be remiss not to throw certain things in there. And I've got a few other things that are a little more specific to you okay. that somehow I didn't manage to put on the document. I apologize for that. It's not a big deal. Well, we'll, we'll answer what we can for you, sir. <laughs> now, first of all, is it okay if I call you Ray? 
not a problem whatsoever. Excellent. Okay. Um, so what I was thinking to, to get ball started here is uh, we had a, an initial conversation where you gave me some background information, but I was going to ask if you could give me some of that background again about the time when you were hired, what you knew about Mego, uh, when you were brought in, um, what was going on at the time. Well, basically, they had just opened up. This was probably 1976, I want to say. I was three years out of college, and they had just opened up a 100,000-square-foot facility uh, in Bohemia. Wow. It was, the, uh, it was the warehouse and the shipping point for the East Coast. Okay. I had worked with Bill Brandt previous company where Bill and I both worked, a place called Delmar Wolvenwood uh, Window Shades. Okay. And Bill was the operations manager, and I worked in credit. Right. Um, Bill, Bill, Delmar closed up their New York operation and went back to Newport Beach, California. Bill got hired. He was the first employee actually hired out at the Bohemia facility. Okay. And then after he was there for probably four or five months, he hired me back again, and I was working in the office. And basically, at the time, I knew nothing about Mego whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> I didn't even know they existed until such time that I got hired. And now you were thinking this is 76? I think it was like 76. Let's see, I graduated from college in 73, and I worked for Delmar, I believe it was three years. After college. After college. I have on my original notes that you mentioned June 73, you were out of college. Yeah. Worked in credit area of a company. So you yeah. think you did that for three years, which would put you in 76. Yeah. And so were you, do you, does it make sense to you that you were at Mego for only about two years? No, I was at Mego for five years. For five years? So yeah. you were there until 81? I was there until about 81. I was there until right before, you'll excuse the expression, the shit hit the fan. Right. The SEC. Now, didn't the shit hit the fan earlier than 81? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Not it, that it, I'm aware it of. It took over a year for the the effects of the, all the badness to, 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 yeah. to take I mean, hold. My understanding, I was laid off in, like, June, I think, of 81. Okay. Something like that. So you really were there almost to the very, very end. Yeah. To... to from other documentation I've read, mm -hmm. um, excuse me, I'm going to try to not talk right in the microphone so I don't blow myself out here. Um, the documentation I've looked at, it's, it was 82 that the doors actually closed. Does that sound right to you? Probably. Okay. All right. From, from my understanding is when, when, when it came across the, the, the ticker at, you know, where, the, where they sell the stock, or if they were on the NASDAQ or the America or whatever, sure. that they were being investigated by the SEC. It was like everything collapsed at that point in time. Wow. Oh, so when that happens, do they t sort of take it off the stick, off the ticker, and they put up uh, a reason I, why? I don't know. I don't know what happened to the specifics, as but you know, basically when you're back in eighty whatever, if you're being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, it's not good. Right. Right. So if 1976 is about the time when you come in there. Yeah. Uh, what, to your recollection, what was, what was the biggest toy that was moving through there at the biggest rate? Because it probably wasn't even a superhero. When I first got there, they were very, very, the, 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 the new line for that 
actually. Well, but it really took off in 75. Yeah, see, because when I got there, the first digit of the item number was the year. And all the superheroes were 51, 51300, 51301, 51302, 51302, and then the assortment was 51310, 51311. So wait. Two different assortments they sold. What do you mean by the year? Okay. When I got there in 76, and the superheroes... for 76? No, because apparently the superheroes were like in 75. Well, at 75 is when they started, you know, taking off and they gave them this number. Because the original... When I got there in 76, probably the big thing that was out that year was the uh, Starship, you know, the Star Wars junk. The, the Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek, excuse me. Yeah, that was big for Mego. Now, the, yeah. originally the superheroes were just four, all the Mego stuff was four-digit codes. So Batman, for example, originally was four digits. He was 1300. Then you're they saying in, in, somewhere around 75, they had a five. Then. And you think that had to do with the year? I thought so. Oh, I've always wondered that. Because after that, the, the Star Trek stuff was sixes. You're kidding. No. Oh, I've always wondered why they added that. Ugh. That makes sense. So they really did switch to the five-digit code in 75. Mm -hmm. And when you got there, everything. Now, had, would it, did that change propagate immediately, which is to say, by the time you were there, did everything have five digits? Yes. Okay. Everything had five digits by the time I got there in 76. That makes a lot of sense. There are some packages that um, are very, very similar, the only difference being the five-digit code. Mm -hmm. That seems like more often than not, it's actually the five-digit code that is the more scarce today yeah. than the four-digit code. I don't know why that oh, is. I, I have no idea. Because I never saw the four-digit code. You never saw the four-digit code? I never codes. saw the four. Or if I did, I didn't pay attention. Now, did you, when you came in, did they have uh, boxes or just blister cards? They were in, I thought initially they were in boxes, and then they went to a blister card. How quickly did they move to the blister card? I really couldn't say. I wasn't in the production end. Um, but, but I mean, just in terms of distribution, when they would, when the, because the cases would obviously change size from a, a case of of uh, box superheroes, say, say, yeah, well, it was twenty four pieces a lot bigger than the blister pack. Which well, the blisters I think were actually tall or taller and wider. So I would think the blister card boxes would be physically would be larger than the the display boxes. I I, I don't recall. I don't recall. I know they started out in boxes and they went to a blister pack. That's very helpful to me because I have been under the impression from my research that boxes were available all the way through 1976 and that it wasn't until 1977 that they started to phase those out and did blister cards. So that makes sense. If you were there in 76 and they had boxes, mm -hmm. that's magic. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Um, so tell me a little bit about the actual warehouse where, where you worked. Was it the first Mego warehouse, or was it just the East Coast? Well, they, they had a rental facility in Los Angeles. But, and I'm assuming the rental facility was out there prior to the East Coast facility. They opened up the East Coast facility in the summer, or maybe the spring of 76. So like I say, it was 100,000 square feet. By the time I left in 81, 
600,000 square feet. And then they had another building. In Bohemia. Building. In Bohemia. In Bohemia. Wow. And then they had another building where they put production to the right of the original building that was like 65,000 square feet. And they dug this giant tunnel to connect the two buildings together. Wow. Why? Huh? Why? I guess so they could just move the stuff from the production area to the warehouse area without going across the parking lot. Now, what do you mean by production area? What did they actually do? It, was, it wasn't even production. It was more assembly. Really? More assembly. They would repack superheroes. Really? You know, if, if they needed something special, they would take the 51310 box, which was an assortment. Yes. And they would cannibalize through them, and they'd make a, you know, a box of all Superman. They'd make a box of all Spider-Man. Wow. And so they actually, I was, I was going to ask you about this in terms of, you, you talked about when the returns would come in, and we'll yeah. get to that in a second, but the, I, was, I had this vision of these women sitting in the back of the warehouse where it was really needed to be uh, swept up because it was dusty, and they are doing the changes there. But you're saying there's a whole other facility where they would do that. Well, they, they, started, they, started, out in the, they started out in the second, in the back building, the second back building. And there was a guy named Tony Canazaro who ran the back building. Canazaro? Yeah. Can you spell that? C-A-N-A-R-I-Z-Z-O or something like that. Okay. And he ran the back building. He, he ran the production in the back building, which really wasn't production. It was more assembly and packing. I mean, like when they did the shares, it was a, a giant assembly line with the share bus coming down the line and somebody threw bobby pins in and somebody threw lipstick in and somebody threw all the other junk in. That almost sounds like something that should have happened in Hong Kong. Yeah, but apparently they were making the shares locally. They weren't being produced. They, they were being produced, I think, in a factory in Brooklyn someplace. Now, is that Pack Toys? Is that possible? Excuse me? Was that Could that have been a company called Pack, P-A-C? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. You're not sure if you where that stuff was coming from. I know that there was a company, I believe it's called Pack, and they did chips. The TV show, Chips. Yeah. And they did, might have done even Dukes of Hazard. I think, I know Chips was all domestic. Well, I know Dukes of Hazard. I guess Dukes of Hazard was Amigo when I did, when I, probably as I was leaving. That sounds right. Yeah, it was like in 81 they did Dukes of Hazard. Yeah. I think they'd had the license a little bit before, yeah, but it didn't really take General off. Lee Carr. And, and before that, I guess the last big one that we had before I left, because Dukes, must, Dukes must have been just about the, was the Waltons. Did that do well? It couldn't Not have really. done well. The only thing they ever sold was that Walton farmhouse. Right. And that was an attempt to try to get a different demographic into toys. Yeah. Get the girls in the family in younger age, maybe? Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, so wait. Back to the production facility, or, or fulfillment, or whatever we want to call it, where yeah. they're actually doing this cannibalizing. Um, this was... This was Tony wasn't cannibalized. Well, he was can Okay, he was repacking superheroes as needed. He would be repacking Star Trek heroes as needed. And if and and he was he was doing some of the other stuff. Some of the other, like I said, I remember the assembly line with Cher. Right. That the, you know the Cher head went down the thing and the box went down the thing and they people threw bobby pins in and people threw scrunchies in and whatever the hell else they threw in the Cher box. That's funny. Now, somebody has to have pictures of this. Does somebody have any photos of the old facility? I don't. You don't have any shots? No. Even snapshots of your of you and the gang? No. Nothing. I wish I did, but I don't. 
That's not surprising. Right? It would be a really nice piece to put in the book to have an actual photo. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could get you a photo of the building. You could. Yeah, the building's still there. I'd love to get a shot of the building. Yeah. And, and would you be able to point to me to which one was production, which one was the two connected with yeah. the tunnel? Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. That would be tremendous. Yeah, I could get there. Yeah, they're only they're five miles from here. Oh, that's perfect. That's fantastic. Now, there's one thing with the boxes. I don't know if you'll remember this or not, um, but I'm fairly confident that if they came from when they came from Hong Kong, they didn't put any tape on the flaps, the top and bottom flap, to open up the toy inside. Uh, on the outside, to sort of keep the flap closed. It seems like maybe retailers. You're talking about the actual box that the, that the toy was in. Yes, sir. That's correct. You d you guys put tape or didn't? No. You never did, right? Never did. Because it's weird. A lot of them turn up nowadays in today's market, yeah. and they've got that tape. Um, and it's probably something that either the retailers did or no. may, maybe another place. But you guys never put never, tape. I never saw it on the assembly thing. And I and no. We, and we never opened up a box to put tape on them. Yeah, no, the you would. The came in is the way they went out. Except you did mention once that you guys would... Uh, Pull, pull, pull a couple pieces, or you would just send the whole box over to the production building. Well, they would take, you know, entire cases, ten skids. Wow, bring that's them over there, and they would just throw, throw, throw them on an assembly line. And one guy was pulling out Captain Americas, and one guy was pulling out Spider-Mans, and one guy was pulling out Superman, and they would just repack them into solid packs. And they really needed a whole other building to do just that part of it. Well, I'm sure they did more than that, but that's one of the things they did that I recall. Gotcha. I mean, they, you know, they ran a lot of stuff back there, although it escapes me at the moment. I mean, when I was there, it was obviously superheroes. It was obviously Star Trek. It was Wizard of Oz. And then they had that dopey, uh, oh, God, what the hell was that? That, that one, one of the first, I, I hesitate to use the word video games. The 2XL. No, 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 no. Well, they had 2XL, but they had that car thing. Oh, right. Yeah, the uh, the speed burners, whatever that was, I know what you're talking about. Well, no, the, the speed burners, which was something they did in the back building, the assembly, where they threw the stuff, they, they again, put it, you know, the track. No, this was the, uh, this was like $65. It was cars on a belt that went around. It was one of the first video games. I know what you're talking about now. I just can't remember the name. Uh, what the, I can't remember the name either. It was in a big box, and basically, you saw the shadow of a car on a belt. And you would have to try to avoid and hitting the shadows in front of you. And, and, the, and the only thing you saw was the shadow of the car. I mean, there was, like, no mirror in there. There was nothing. <laughs> and it was expensive. I mean, I think, I think everyone they ever shipped out, they got back. What do you mean? That they didn't work. They didn't work? It didn't work. The electronics failed? Well, the, 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 just the way it was designed. It was designed so poor. I'm telling you. Wow. It was, it was a, a belt. This thing was about 24 inches long. <laughs> and it had a belt inside it that went around. And it had, like, cars glued to the belt. Oh, I know what you're talking about. It wasn't a video game at all. It was actually physically a belt. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. And, and when these cars went by, you could see the shadow of it on, on this piece of plastic, and you had the steer. It, it, was, it was crazy. <laughs> and I'm telling you, it was speed something. And, and I'm telling you, everyone they ever sold came back. Wow, so w that would probably qualify as the biggest bomb for Mego? Oh, I would say. What do you think was the second biggest bomb for Mego? 
again, everything is in the context of your recollections, the time you were there. Anything yeah. else I don't care about. Yeah. Well, that, 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 if we could remember the name of that damn thing. Scott here. They are discussing the 1978 Grand Prix racing game. But uh, that, that was, in fact, the bomb. That was um, the bomb. Second biggest bomb? Hmm, good question. Well, let's talk about the heroes. Do you remember, you've, you've mentioned a lot of them by name, Superman, Batman, yeah. Captain yeah. America. Um, I am under the impression that Captain America, for example, was not a good seller, even though it seems like he should have been. That it really didn't move that many units. Do you, when, when you think of um, the figures that you were moving a lot of, like, say, the solid packs, mm -hmm. Batman, you've mentioned Superman. Yeah. Who else was shipping at that kind of massive volume? In solid packs? Solid uh, is that a good, do you tell me, is that a decent baseline if there's a lot of them going out in solid packs? That means yeah. it's hot. Well, see, it, we did get, we, for, for like the big three, Spider-Man, Superman, and Batman, we did get solid packs in from Hong Kong. Oh, okay. We did get solid packs in from Hong Kong, but when they needed more, right, they would just go and make them. If, um, on that same note, if you look at a price sheet for the, those years when you were there, uh -huh. there are often quite a few figures that they will offer to the buyers. It doesn't necessarily mean they made them. I don't, I don't think it means that. But the, you might have like eight or nine figures that were offered at Toy Fair in solid packs, and then other figures would be included in the assortment, the 51310 mm -hmm. that you yeah. talked about. Does that sound right? That was the basic, yes, that was the basic assortment. There was a 51310 and a 51311. And then there was, uh, there was also a 51312. There was a 12, and they switched those numbers around a lot. I remember in 70... Seven when they came out with the Teen Titans on the blister cards, the teen, they had five. It was uh, thirteen, sixteen, five, thirteen, seventeen, five, thirteen, eighteen, and five, thirteen, nineteen, which was a lot of assortments. Teen Titans, man, I don't remember them at all. They came on again. You didn't open them, so the packaging wouldn't matter. They were sort of baby blue blister cards. There were only four characters, and apparently the little they Gumby ones. No, they were just like the eight-inch superheroes. What were the little Gumby ones we did for a while? Those were bendies. Yeah. Those were called bendies, and those, I understand those did very well. Does that, did those seem like you were selling a fair I, amount? I, I honestly don't know. That might have been a little before you got there, though. I thought that was more like 74, 75. No, because didn't they also make superheroes in those, like, Gumby kind of deals for a while? Yeah, they called them bendies. B-E-N-D-I-E-S. That name doesn't ring a bell. Oh, Okay. That name doesn't ring a bell. I, it, I mean, it seems to me they have some kind of... Well, they did... They, I think on the packaging, it actually says bend and flex. Okay, that was probably... Does that, that ring a bell? That kind of, I recall, yeah. I think maybe it's collector speak to say bendies, but I think they were actually maybe, maybe even trademarked bend and flex. Mm -hmm. 
and they were basically the, all the superheroes, but just smaller, about four or five inches tall, made out of rubber with maybe a wire armature inside. Yeah. Correct. Um, so if there was another scale that you know, you know, you know, you know, I just thought of another one that I wouldn't call it a bus. Okay. But it was it was <laughs> it had all kinds of heartaches. They made something called Stretch Armstrong. Yes. That used to explode, and all that corn syrup used to go all over the place. So even the Mego versions of that did not do well. They may have sold a lot of them, but they all ruptured. Right. Right, 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 right. And there was, uh, I think you did quite a few. There were Batman, Hulk, Spider-Man. Yeah. Some of those main big characters. Yeah. Um, that's funny. Those are the three names you mentioned as being, those were definitely the top sellers, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man? I would say, yeah. Do you think it may be even in that order? Batman definitely had to be the biggest seller. Yeah, probably. Okay. Um, so you don't recall the Teen Titans at all? No. They happened for one year, 19... 77 is what I understand. Don't recall them at all. Okay. Must have been on drugs that year or something. Well, that's, you know, you would not have been alone. <laughs> the building you said was 100,000 square feet. The first one was 100,000, then they added a second 100,000, then they added a third, I think it was 65,000. Now, how many employees in the first building do you suppose, ballpark? During the peak? Yeah, let's just focus on this. Which was, let's say... Our first big push was Memorial Day, and then it was hell-bent for leather through probably September. Each year, every yeah. year, over and over. Yeah, and then after September, it kind of wound down. So how many employees when you were getting slammed? Uh, at, the, at the warehouse, I'd say, well, not counting the production people, just the warehouse, the distribution, I'd say 60. Okay, and you and you would bring in employees for temp work when it was really busy, and then let yes. them go when it was not busy. Yes, correct. Can you talk a little bit about when it was really busy? That's this peak period. Like, what was a typical work day? Well, it's it's it, 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 well, there was a time when we were when we had a day shift and a night shift. Wow. Twenty-four night, hours. Huh? Twenty-four hour oh, building. Sixteen hours. Sixteen hour building. Okay. Sixteen hours. And, I mean, the back building ended up being pretty, primarily just dead storage. What do you mean by dead storage? Well, they, you know, they just stored stuff back there. Oh, okay. And when they needed it, they went and got what they needed. You know, if they, if they stored parts back there for the assembly people. And then they eventually, you know, they, you know production didn't stop. Production wasn't there when I first got there. Production probably came on, like, in 79. That late? Yeah, so maybe 78, 78, 79, something like that. Wow. Okay. It's, it's just, it's so weird to think that. And, and the back building turned out to be pretty much just storage. And, you know, they, they, you know, they put all, any, anything back there, they, you know. So did they maybe buy a building they, a little. Uh, they built it. Oh, they built it, but maybe they were a little premature and they didn't really need it? Uh, well, again, what, you know, they, they, they filled it uh, because after they built the back building, they built the third building next door, which was totally production. Right. Okay. And, uh, you, you know, they, they would just, you know, the stuff that they were going to clear out, they would just move into the back building. Like, wow. you know, Like, you know, when the Walton's farmhouse was a dead issue, they must have had 10,000 cars of them floating around. Well, no, not 10,000, maybe two or 3,000 cartons of them. 
Oh, two or three thousand. Now, what would they do with those? They clear them out to somebody. So just rock bottom price, sell it. Yeah. Who, who, like, think who the hell they used to clear them out to? It wasn't. It wasn't Joe Rowe. Who the hell did they used to sell the closeouts to? Wasn't Joe Rowe? What's Joe Rowe? Joe Rowe's the guy who used to buy the junk. He used to buy the returns. Joe, his name's Joe Rowe. Yeah. Like R O E or something? Yeah, something like that. That was the name of his company, Joe Rowe. He's the, he was basically the one that sent them down. You know, he was pay he was paying cash for the for the stuff. Was that me? Declaring. Well, now who is Herb? Because I have Herb written on my notes. Yeah, Herb, Herb was the guy who owned Joe Rowe. Oh, gotcha. Okay, so and all right, so this you're thinking this is there are two different things at play here. One is this guy would buy up the returns. Yeah, this guy was buying the returns. But then when you had dead stock, yeah, like Walton's yeah, farmhouse. Close it out to. And it was long before the era of, you know, national liquidate, all these liquidators who were around. And you'd, obviously you'd give first shot to Izzy, which I want to ask you about again. Yeah. But if he didn't take it, then somebody else would just buy him up. Now, maybe yeah. it was this company that had the thing down by the shore. Maybe they just dumped him down at the fair. <laughs> it's, it's possible, although, although the, the, the shore was pretty much the salmon and wells. Right, okay. The shore was, I mean, it was very, very low-end stuff toys. You know, no plush. It was what they called rag. It was just like a cotton shell that they blew, blew, blew cotton into or whatever that stuff was. That the filling, yeah. That filling. And then somebody would just sew it up and throw it in a box. Gotcha. Now, Ray, you mentioned the Waltons being a dead stock piece, and that makes perfect sense that that didn't sell that well. Mm-hmm. Can you recall any superheroes or play sets for the superheroes that would have suffered the same fate. And I'm thinking of a couple pieces in particular, but I just wanted to see if I could jar your memory. Did any superheroes die that kind of fate? Not that I can recall. There's there's one I'll throw out to you. I don't know if this will ring a bell or not. They, uh, and I think it was in 1978. Um, they... I don't know if they were trying to capitalize on the movie Jaws or not, which would have been three years too late, I think. But they did come out with a, what I don't know if you can even call it a play set, but it was a box about two and a half feet long, maybe eight inches tall, and it was Aquaman versus the Great White Shark. I don't recall it at all. And it was apparently a real stinker, like a bomb. <laughs> and those things sell for three to $5,000 regularly. Yeah, because they're that that's good. That, so that doesn't ring a bell to you. Not at all. No other superheroes. Did they do the fortress? They did the fortress of solitude, right? Yeah. So that was for the comic action heroes. That were smaller. Yeah. Did those do? Do you remember shipping a lot of comic action? Of solitude didn't do real well. It didn't. Surprisingly enough, it didn't do real well. No. Now, what about for the eight-inch figures? They did the Hall of Justice in '76. Don't think that did super either. I, I think I have somewhere in my notes from an, somebody else had talked to Neil Cublin, yeah. and he mentioned playsets really weren't that big of a deal, and they were probably pr- produced domestically. I mean, the Starship, you know, the, the Starship Enterprise did well. That was huge, right? That did well. And the Emerald City did pretty good also, at really? least for one year. For one year, that, and it was when you were there? Yeah. So that, maybe it was that first year, that first Christmas? Yeah. 76? Emerald City and the, and the Starship Enterprise. They both did real well. Now we, I can even tell you the Starship Enterprise's number was 51-126, as I recall. Now, how does that work? Do you have a photographic memory, or did certain things you just ship so yeah, many? There were just some things that were so prevalent mm-hmm. that you just, you know, 
that memorized, but I'm geeky about it. And for you, it was many years ago, and I think it's wonderful that you remember this. Yeah. Um, I, I, I lost my train of thought. I was going to ask you something on that same note. Well, we were talking about the failures, the Hall of, not the failures, but the Hall of Justice didn't do all that well that I recall. Okay. The Fortress of Solitude didn't do all that well as I recall. Any, uh, how about the, the vehicles like the Batmobile, the Batcycle, and the Batcopter, and the Spidermobile, and the Green Arrow car, and the Captain America car? Uh, the, 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 the Batmobile obviously did well. Uh, I, don't, I don't even remember a Green Arrow car. Don't even remember it. No. Really? Don't even remember it. I'm, I'm thinking it may have been shipped in an assortment with Captain America cars. Do you remember the Captain America car? Honestly, no. Okay, so they probably, they might, do you remember a Spider-Man dune buggy car? Spider-Man dune buggy car? Yeah, it was a spider car. Actually, I don't. You remember the Batmobile, though? Yeah, absolutely with the Batmobile. I think that was 5-13-25. Something like that. <laughs> Something like that, 5-1-3-2-5. Mm-hmm. Something like that, yes, correct. Exactly right. Okay. Um, now, there were also a couple of big vehicles that I thought maybe did well. They had a, what was, they were based on the, the Volkswagen minibuses. And it was the, uh, the Bat Lab. Yes, correct. And the Joker Mobile. Okay, both of those I recall. You do. Now, I have a friend who has a case from the warehouse. Has what? Uh, an actual case of Joker mobiles. Oh. And it, hold, it held only six pieces. Yeah. And the darn thing is still about three feet tall. <laughs> okay. Those were big. Yeah. Now, it, 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 you get an order in. So everything's stored in the warehouse. Everything's, Correct. Everything's shelved. I do, we're kind of an organization. This is before computers, before databases. It was absolutely before computers and databases. How did you organize the incredible volume of toys so that you could go find it to fulfill an order? They were kept pretty much together. I mean, at, at its maximum. Uh, I mean, the superheroes had maybe ten items at any given time. What do you mean, only 10 items? Well, if I have, you know, I count 51310 as one item. Okay, I gotcha. Uh, you know, and they, 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 I mean, as I say, we had 100,000 square feet, and it had 25-foot ceilings. Was it ever filled up? Yeah, all, all the time. My God. All the time. Four to ceiling? Excuse, four to ceiling. How yes. did you get the stuff down? Do you have forklift? Forklift. So you had giant shelving units where you could palletize? Stacked on top of each other. Just palletized and thrown up palletized there? Palletized and put on top of each other. And it, Which it, was part of the problem because by the time you got it up 25 feet, the, the, you know, the cartons on the bottom were crushing. Oh, they didn't have shelving units? They were putting it all on top of itself? Sticking it on top of each other. No shelving. They kept talking about doing shelving, but they never did. At least not while I was. No, they never did. They never did. If you were there in 81, they never would have no, done it. they never did. So how many damages did you guys create through that bad setup? I'm sure a lot. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think you guys actually damaged yeah. some, some goods? Oh, absolutely. So did you guys have um, packaging in that other building so that you could put together pieces? Yeah. So you had, like, boxes for the superheroes? Yeah. Did you think they even did blister cards there? That I don't recall. I don't remember seeing any heavy machinery to do blister cards. Oh, because of the heat seal? Yeah. 
Interesting. So maybe they never did that. I, I, what I'm feeling very convinced about is that somewhere along the line they stopped making boxes completely and just did blister cards. But you don't really remember a transition or even that switch. You just remember the item yeah. numbers. Yeah. And the boxes probably didn't even – they probably didn't change size so significantly that you were even aware of it. Uh, you're, you're right. And you never opened them, so why would you know? Well, we, we opened them – like we had a samples area. Okay. That I was that I was in charge of as part of you know the office. Oh. Yeah. Can you tell me about the samples room? Well, it was just uh, you know we probably had something of everything in there, and we would get requisitions from New York to send it here, there, and everywhere. And there was a young lady who just took what they wanted from New York, stuck it in the box, and sent it someplace. From the samples room? Yeah. So it was well, like, samples out at the warehouse. I'm sure they had a sample room in Manhattan also. Oh, so what you had was the sales samples, and what they had in Manhattan was probably the glamorous samples. Like, yeah, the, like the prototype samples. Yeah, like the display room to show the big buyers. Yeah. What you guys had was a room that was probably had quite a lot of merchandise, and it was sales samples that were oh, yeah. hand-picked. They were good if they had to send it out to. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Uh, and you were in charge of that. Yeah. What did you have to do to be in charge of it? And hand take the orders and hand them to the young lady and say, here's what you got to do. Gotcha. <laughs> and she would just, you know, we you know, if she didn't have what it, we needed, we'd go get it for her. So she could come in from Manhattan, pretty much come see you, yeah. go up in the sample room with or without you, pull what she needed. Yep. If she was missing something, she'd come grab you and say, I need four pieces of this. Yep, yep. And so she probably was maybe a liaison for somebody, a big sales guy in the warehouse that needed well the, the young lady to work for me was in the warehouse but any of the salesmen could request samples neil Cublin used to request samples by the ton <laughs> why do you suppose you did that i i had a lot of friends uh, <laughs> gotcha <laughs> neil would be able to tell you about that racing car game i'm gonna ask him about that actually i need, yeah. I need to ask that. i you really feel like none of them actually were used by kids well they may have been used for play for what they cost them for what they gave you back as utility they were terrible <laughs> okay let's jump back into the damaging see so stuff comes up but it probably goes to the insurance company if not somebody might go through and grab some stuff or put it back through yeah. the production cycle um and then this is something that was new to me that's why i want to follow up is Without shelving, you guys crushed a fair amount of stuff. Yeah. What would you do in that case? Because that's, you just eat it. Rebox it. Rebox it. Rebox it. So that would entail? None None of the cartons were all that heavy. I mean, I think the heaviest carton they probably had, other than the Stretch Armstrongs. Right. Well, I don't think there was a carton there that was more than 25 pounds. Even the Joker mobiles? even in the price guide, seven or eight pounds yeah. total for the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and again, it depends a lot on what's it. Like the, the, like the Walton farmhouses came in a long, flat box. And because the boxes were filled with all that card, you know, that printed cardboard. Right. They, you know, they were relatively heavy, but it was relatively stable. Sure. That's right. I forgot that box is long and not, it's like a two inches tall. Yeah, it was long and flat. Yes, right. Forgot about that. Okay. Um, something I do want to ask 
ask you about is a little bit of the allocation stuff. You know, that if we had, for argument's sake, 20,000 cases of, of dolls, and he had 60,000 cases of dolls, or he had 60,000 cases on order, you know, how many did Toys R Us get? How many did Service Merchandise get? How many did Child World get? How many did Sears get? And then the rest went to, you know, a, a place like Greenman Brothers. What's that? That was a, a toy distributor out of Brooklyn. He was like a wholesaler. But he would he would resell to the smaller toy stores. The mom and pop shops? The mom and pop shops or, or a place like, actually Greenman Brothers ran a toy chain called Play World. Play World? Yeah. Not Child World? No. Child World was out of Avon, Massachusetts. This was Play World. And they were just local to Long Island. They had maybe 20 stores. Okay. Yeah. And Greenman Brothers used to sell to Play World. We didn't sell directly to Play World. We sold it you know, through, through Greenman Brothers. So would Greenman Brothers be able to buy in enough quantity to get a good discount from you guys? Yes. Okay, so it was worth their while and to they, resell. And they were pretty high on the pecking order. Meaning? Meaning that, you know, when things got allocated, they always got something. Oh, they got goods. Yeah. You told me a story last time, uh, trying to look at, look at my notes here, just, you know, that it, it, early on when you first got there, it was so busy, if, uh, if Toys R Us ordered 10,000 cases to Baltimore, they might get 2,000, I think is what I have in my notes. Yeah, something like that. Now, I, when you first told me that story, I kind of thought we were talking about, like, 1974, but you were there in 76. Oh, I was there in 74. Right. So, Migo really was doing a lot of business in, in 76 when you first got there. Yes. It was big. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm, up, up till then, they must have been doing everything out of the West Coast. They must have been, because you're saying Bohemia didn't really exist until 76. Yeah. Maybe the end of 75, like the winter of 75. But, you know... You, I, I got there in, like, I don't know, like, I think October of 76 is when I got there. And Bill was about five months before me. So he would have been, like, May of 76. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, yeah, I don't know what they were doing before then. They were probably just trying to deal with the explosive popularity of the heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, in 76... It seemed like, at least on the corporate level, like the, 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 the Neil Cublin and the Marty side of what they were going to push, mm-hmm. the sales side, I suppose, is what I should be saying, not even them. 76 seemed like it was really focused towards Star Trek and Micronauts. Okay. Was Micronauts, did that at some point take over the warehouses? Was it just Micronauts yeah, everywhere? That, now do you bring up Micronauts, I remember them. They, yeah, they were pretty big. And there, were, there was a lot of different... Figures and play sets and vehicles, and it was—it did massive business. Yeah, they so, did well. Did it at some point just dwarf the superheroes, or dwarf everything, or was it not that big a deal? No, it wasn't that big a deal. They I just, don't think anything ever really dwarfed the superheroes. Really? They always—they always had a, 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 a following, so to speak. They may not have been as big, and you know, but they were always there. From the time I got there in 76 to the time I left in 81, there were still cases and cases of superheroes there. It really seemed to have put the company on the map. I would think, yes. But I I have been formulating a theory, probably erroneously, that the heroes really took a nosedive in 77 or 78. Do you feel like you were still shipping massive quantities at that point? 
or did you see it dwindle at some point? No, I would say they were still shipping pretty good. I mean, if anything, it was the, probably the Star Trek figures that were very, very popular for a year or two and, and then died. subsided. That, I've heard that, and that actually makes sense. But you really, you really recall yeah. the heroes just always doing business. When I was there, they, I mean, they, they probably didn't sell in the same quantity as, but they were still a very, very viable item. Can you, right, right through to when I was left in 81. Can you give me any sense, say 1976? No, as, as a percentage or as a... Or quantities? No, I, I really couldn't. So, uh, uh, and, and depending on the different retailers, they could order one case or 10,000 cases, so there's no way to even no. ballpark some yeah. of this. They're, they're, you're right. I mean, I, I, I know they wouldn't, unless it were a guy like Izzy, they wouldn't sell you one case. Okay. Even the small guys. What was a minimum order quantity? I don't think there was a minimum order, but if I had to guess, I'd probably say 10 cases. That was, yeah, more or less, that's about the smallest order you felt like you guys would get? Yeah. 10 cases. And that would yeah. be a, a mom and pop shop that didn't go through Greenman Brothers. Right, that didn't go through a wholesaler. Okay. Were there other wholesalers other than Greenman Brothers? Uh, there was one other, what the hell was the name of it? Shepherd in, in Brooklyn also, S S-H-E-P-E-H-E-R, Shepherd Brothers. Shepherd Brothers. They were also a wholesaler. Oh, what's with the brother's name? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Incestuous industry. You suppose? Yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, CPAC and I, I've, on these notes that are just yeah. sort of garbled. CPAC was a consolidator for Kmart. For Kmart? Yeah. And what is... Kmart... Kmart didn't Kmart ordered by the individual store. Oh, they did. That you know, uh, uh, you know, store number fifty six twenty three in Geneva, New York. Okay. Would get you know two cases of this, three cases of that, four cases of this, and five cases of something else. But how could you guys possibly handle those kinds of orders? Well, what we did was we put them on a truck, and it would be a CPAC truck went to a Kmart breakdown point, and CPAC handled a specific region of the country. I see. And, so you really actually... And, and, and we would write up a manifest of everything that was on that truck. You you would put all the store's goods on one truck? No, only the store's goods. Like, there was a CPAC. There was a CUSA. There was... They, they, were like, they had, like, five distribution points. To handle the entire country? For Kmart, to handle the entire country. Oh, so if you gave them a truck, you fill up a CPAC truck, it would only be goods going to those stores. Right, correct. And we and we did a manifest that said store number so-and-so was getting 10 cartons. Store number so-and-so was getting 8 cartons. Store number so-and-so was getting 7 cartons. Didn't say on the manifest what was in the cartons, just how many cartons when they broke the truck down. To count. They, that for store 5723, you should have 8 cartons. Um... For, forgive me for getting sidled. It seems like an awful lot of work you guys had to do. Kmart was a humongous account at that time. But why didn't you guys just handle the consolidation yourselves? You were effectively doing it, it sounds like. No, because all that we were doing was sticking it on one truck, and it would go to New Jersey to their breakdown point, and then they would put it onto the local Kmart trucks to get it to the individual stores. I see, and that was something you were not prepared to do. No. Okay. Now, occasionally, if you know, the, the, you know, if if we had 
there were display packs in there. They, and they were actually display graphics on those boxes? Yeah, correct. Interesting. Yeah, the, the, yeah before they went to the blister pack, it was, you know, well, so was a little box inside. You know, there would be 12 little boxes and four of them would be Supermans. Well, actually, I think they were cases of 24. They are 24. I have yeah. one here, yeah. and it holds 24 pieces. Mm -hmm. It's four rows across, six deep. Mm -hmm. Now, you get a master carton, and it, and it, it holds, would it be four cases of 24? How many in a master? No, a master carton is just a case of 24. That's a Master Garden? Yeah. I thought a Master Garden was like multiple units. No. Well, multiple units, no. Oh, so the Master Garden no, would just be... Came, they never came in more than, you know, a case of 24. But wait, let me ask you this, because another case that uh, a friend of mine has is for Star Trek cards, and it's this very tall... Uh, what I cards. Uh, blister cards, I'm sorry. Okay. And it was a very tall box inside of which you could stack three other cases, and I would consider the big box the master carton, and then when you open up the master carton, you'd pull out one box, two box, three boxes. Those boxes would hold the actual display blister cards. You guys didn't do that with superheroes. That I'm not familiar with at all. I don't recall, unless that was something that they did for just specific people and came right out of Hong Kong. Don't remember seeing anything like that at the warehouse. You know what, now that you mention it, I think it might have been a palatoid box, which would have been England, so maybe you're right. So you never did, when, when you got cases, it was just 24 pieces in there. Yes, sir. And with the boxes always shipped with display boxes, with the counter display box? Yes. Always? Always. Okay. Always. Now, the graphics on those boxes, I know you don't look at the graphics, but it, I know that it became a big legal issue with the fact that Marvel Comics owned Spider-Man and DC owned Batman. They didn't want those mixed up. Did that ever become an issue for you guys? In Not for me. No. But no. I wasn't even aware that there was two different licenses. Okay. I, mean, I knew it was two different licenses, but the fact that one was DC and one was Marvel. Never bothered you guys at the warehouse level? Not, not at the warehouse, no. Somebody else. That was probably a Lenny Siegel heartache. <laughs> but if you uh, open these things up, you would see a counter display box already filled because of some kind of an order placed by... Uh -huh. Migo headquarters with the factory in Hong Kong. Yeah. That was already pre-ordained. Those assortments were fixed. Uh -huh. Did those counter display boxes ever come with solid, filled, only one character? Yeah. The counter display box will only have one character? Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So it could be all Batmans or all Supermans in there, right. even though the graphics show all the other right. characters. Yeah, it indicated that earlier that we got solid packs in from Hong Kong. And when we ran out and needed more, we made them up ourselves. I guess I just didn't understand you were yeah. you knew about the counter display box that I was asking about yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So they, they, I just had an image of them coming in, in brown, regular old brown boxes. No, absolutely not. But inside the, the brown box. They came in regular old brown boxes with those Montgomery Ward ones. Now tell me about that. What do you, what do you mean the Montgomery Ward ones? All I know is Montgomery Ward's got some special ones. And that because Montgomery Wards was a mail order house, yes, they came in like a little brown box that so you could just lick a stamp, put it on, and send it out. So you guys did get the brown boxes. That's another question I wanted yes, to ask you. Occasionally, and it was pretty much for Montgomery Ward that you remember yeah, those. Almost exclusively Montgomery Wards. You don't remember yes, J.C. Penny? Exclusively Montgomery Wards. They were the only ones that ever got the brown boxes. Not, what about J.C. Penny? J.C. Penny, I think, did Wizard of Oz in those. 
Yeah, it's conceivable. Okay. I, I don't recall off the top of my head, but I remember seeing the Montgomery Ward's brown boxes. And by brown boxes, you mean the 12, you know, 10 or 12 inches long? Like a mailbox. It holds, it holds an individual figure. Yeah, correct. And inside the brown box, just a, a poly bag and a doll. Poly bag and a doll. Okay. It may now, have not even been a poly bag. It may have just been a doll. Now, how did those brown boxes come? Inside another bigger box they that held... Inside, they came two, two dozen to a case also. The same way as the yeah, other heroes. The same way as the other heroes. The box would just be a little bigger to accommodate the brown shipping, individual shipping boxes. Yeah, probably a little bit bigger. But not much. Either that, either that or... Yeah, I would say, well, yeah, because the brown box was heavier than the shipping box, than the, than the display box. Right. Much, much, much thicker. It was like corrugated yeah. almost. It was corrugated. Right. Correct. And the display box yeah. was just a little cardboard. I think Montgomery Wards did nothing but put a stamp on it and a name label and off it went. Now, those were probably ones that were taped. Those, yeah, those probably would have been taped. But those, you would get those from Hong Kong. Hong Kong. And you would know automatically that every one of them was gonna, just going to go yeah, to some... Yeah, because the outside boxes were stamped Montgomery Ward. They would say Montgomery Ward. Uh-huh. Okay. So you wouldn't even have to deal with those at all. You never just you not, just not very. They were there, but I didn't have to. Do. I mean, we 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 for whatever reason didn't do that much with Montgomery Wards. At least not to my knowledge. Maybe, maybe they got a lot of direct sea containers. Now, what's direct sea mean? I mean, they went directly to Montgomery. You know, they came into the port, and instead of coming to the warehouse, they go right to Montgomery Wards. Oh, so FOB Hong Kong. Yeah. Do you think that happened a lot for a lot of people, or was it? I because I know that. Well, I'm under the impression that SS Kresge or Kmart had done at least one big FOB Hong Kong order. Do you think it was common for other retailers to do that? Probably not. Probably not. Do you think most of it probably came through Bohemia? Yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, I'm, I, you know, it's, it's conceivable that at Toy Fair somebody could have cut some kind of humongous deal. With toy, but, it, you know, I, it, it didn't happen a lot. Not that I'm aware of. Arthur could tell you more about that if you can track him down. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to try to give, give him a call. Um, okay, so we were actually moving down the list nicely here that uh, I wrote. You had mentioned some of the stores that took a lot of a lot of figures, a lot of heroes. You said Toys R Us was probably yeah. took the most Toys quantity R- of superheroes. Toys R Us, Toys R Us took a, a, a lot, a lot, a lot. Yes. And who else? You mentioned a couple others for me. Uh, who who got trailer loads of stuff? Toys R Us got trailer loads. Obviously, Kmart got trailer loads going to their different breakpoints. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, Child World up in Massachusetts used to get a lot of stuff. Service merchandise in Tennessee used to get a lot of stuff. Fascinating. And it's funny, I don't ever remember seeing me go in service merchandise. Yeah, we shipped a lot to there. Down in Nashville, they had a big distribution thing. Okay. Now, what about some of these other companies that you probably didn't, wouldn't have done a lot of orders, but they were, you know, this is before the time of malls and the Internet, <laughs> so you'd have catalog stores that would do a lot of business. And there were a whole slew of them that would feature Mego Heroes, like Spiegel, Alden's. Alden's we did. Now, you, you remember Alden's. I think they were in Chicago. Did they do a fair number of orders? I would think not. Not? Okay. What about Spiegel? Spiegel's didn't do a whole lot either, but I, I do remember orders for Spiegel's. But and then, they, they didn't do a whole lot either. And then how about the big three of Sears, JCPenney, and Ward? You think the most went to probably... Probably of those three, probably Sears. Okay. That's what I'm thinking too. Okay. 
and then maybe J.C. Benny Ward around the same, yeah, or something like that. Okay. I think that, to my understanding, Montgomery Ward had a strong relationship with Migo earlier on, around '74. They did some exclusive figures. Mm-hmm. They were, again, I, I, I'm not aware. Totally before your time, and I think it seemed like they yeah. dwindled in their interest in the heroes after that. So by the time you're there, probably didn't do that much uh, Montgomery Ward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and now any retailer could do the custom orders if they wanted to. I mean, I would say yeah. Because you had no minimum order quantity, you said. I would say yeah. Does it does it seem like it was happening a lot where people were saying, I just don't want those damned Aquamans anymore? You mean in, in, inside, uh, you know, a, you know, like a, a little guy could call and say he doesn't want Aquaman in his assortment? Yes. Uh, no, I don't think that's going to happen. That's not going to happen. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, if Kmart said, I don't want Aquaman in my assortment, they could probably get away with it. If Child World said, I didn't want Aquaman in my assortment, they could probably get away with it. Okay, but, but you, guy, did, you did have to. Be. ordering, you know, 10 cases a year. <laughs> it's not getting, you know, you get, you get whatever happens to come in the box. So assortments was a real, was probably what you did most of, as opposed to solid packs of certain characters. Absolutely. By a factor of... Ten or a hundred or a thousand, like you mostly did assortments. If, Say, if, if we sent out a hundred boxes of superheroes or a hundred cases of superheroes, 98 of them were assortments. My God. So re- really infrequently that people would get solid packs of one figure? Really, very, very infrequently. And, and if they did, it was only the big guys. And if they did, it was only the big guys? Yeah. So the outside of the carton to tell you that you're working in the warehouse. It was the Spider-Man. It, it was the Spider-Man's. Yeah, fifty-one three hundred six was Spider-Man. That's right. That more than Batman? Excuse me. More more so than Batman? No, no. I'm just saying that. They, that no, I'm not saying we ship more Spider-Mans than Batman's, oh. but I'm telling you that you know there was Spider-Man solid packs, there were Batman solid packs, there was Superman solid packs. Oh, so you'd know on the outer carton right away just yeah. by the item number. If it's at yeah. 513.10, you knew it was an assortment, but it's at 513.06. 51300 was Superman, wasn't he? Yes. Okay. You're amazing. No, it's amazing. Okay, so you just, you, just through looking at them, you got so used to the item numbers, you knew what were solid packs, yeah. and you're, you're thinking maybe only two out of every hundred would be solid packs. It wasn't that much. So it's just so weird to me that every year they always offered all these characters in solid packs, and it seems like no one ever took advantage of it. I guess you had to be able, the big guy to get the solid pack. You had to be, okay, okay, all right, fair enough. So you, they put it out there that if you're going to order enough, you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. at Toy Fair. But if you're not going to order enough, you're going to get the assortment, and that's the way it is. Because mm-hmm. I know there were some characters. There's one that comes to mind is a, a Superman villain named Mr. Mitzpidalik. They'd never even heard of him. Exactly. It was like, I mean, they, they made that thing every year you were there for no, no good reason. I mean, these things were peg warmers at every store in the universe. Everyone who remembers them in stores, they were just, they never sold. But Mego continually sold them for yeah. some inexplicable reason. Anyway, um, got that in there. And then we talked about the brown mailer boxes already. Yeah, I always thought it was weird that the brown mailer boxes would feature the Mego item number. But that was just so that they knew what they were looking at? Yeah. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Uh, counter display boxes. We talked about those. I was so excited that you that those were in every every superhero box had a counter display box. Yeah, other than a Montgomery Ward. Other than Montgomery Ward. Yeah. But they always came with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And let's see. Gra- 
Alaska. Okay, and then you don't remember if you would open up a box later on, say like 1978, you open up a box, you don't remember if there's a counter display box that held blister cards. What happens if you open up a box that had blister cards? They were just stacked like face to face, face to face, face, face. The, whole, the whole way. There's nothing graphical to say because they would hang those on the pegs so it didn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Correct. That makes sense. I just wanted to ask because that's, people have often speculated what if there was a counter display box for those. Um, you don't remember anything about the Marvel DC characters on the packaging. No. So I'm going to go away from that. No. Now, do you recall any special promotions like... No. If you order a certain number of... No. That wasn't me. That would have been the sales, that would have been the sales people in the city. Not but wouldn't people. you have had to fulfill what was the giveaway? Well, yeah, but I wouldn't know about it. I, w- I just got a piece of paper to do something with. <laughs> Nothing about the history of the piece of paper. Or where it came from or why it came from. That would be Mike McGoy or the salespeople, Art Tibbet. Okay. You should try Art. I say he used to live in Comac, Long Island. If he's not in Comac, he's in Florida. He's probably retired because Art was 10 years older than me at the time, 15 years older than me at the time. Now we're talking about oh, this is not uh, this is not Art Land. This is Art. No, this is Art Tibbet. He was the vice, vice president of sales. Oh, see, I'm sorry, I was doing that wrong. So Art, you think Art, lives Art in? Art used to be in. You know, the the um, Arthur Land was the the importer. You know, he did the imports, the paperwork. Right, right. And then Arthur Tibbet Arthur was the sales Tibbet guy. Was the sales guy. And you think he lives in Florida now? Well, it wouldn't surprise me. Like I said, Arthur was 10, 15 years older than me back then. So he's totally Arthur's around. probably okay. about 70. Art, Art Tibbet's probably about 70. Okay. And if he's no longer living on the island, knowing the, the island works, he's probably in Florida. But at the time he lived in Comac or where? Yeah, he lived in Comac when I knew him. Uh, I'm going to try to track him down, too. That'd be wonderful. Yeah. There was a promotion that was put out there. I don't know if anyone ever, there were ever any takers at retail level where you could buy, if you bought a certain number of blister card figures, you could get a free poster. But that's, I was just wondering if you knew anything off the top of your head, but nothing. Doesn't ring a bell. Nothing. That may have been after you left, too, because I think it was right in the 81, 82 area. Yeah. Um, I put this on here, and I'm sure you're going to say, who? <laughs> Do you remember the character Isis? Nope. No clue. No clue. Okay. Cause she's yeah, a, yeah, I saw that last question. I thought, who the hell are these things? I never heard of them. Yeah, it's, she's just such a strange figure because she's offered in the superheroes assortment. Mm-hmm. Of, and that's well and good, except yeah. that the packaging didn't fit. Yeah. It was a different size. So I assumed that if they were going to sell it, and I know it was a Montgomery Ward exclusive in 76, mm-hmm. which is, you mentioned that they would get them in brown boxes. Mm-hmm. But they also had graphical display boxes. Not the corrugates, just the display boxes. Well, I'm assuming Montgomery Ward did have some stores. Yes, so they I did. Some of them got display boxes. Okay. So that, yeah, it was probably just for that. And I guess by the time they did the cards, they would just get inserted with the assortments. You'd never see it. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Mail order companies. So not... not Catalogs, but mail order, like Heroes World. Never heard of them. They were in New Jersey. Never heard of them. Okay. Uh, So if you never heard of them, it must mean... Hmm. I don't know what it means. Even something that came through occasionally, Heroes World... Well, they wouldn't. Maybe they weren't even called that. They weren't even called superhero merchandise. They had stores. And that's where the tape cuts off. But we hope you've enjoyed spending some time with Ray D'Amato and Ben Holcomb talking about the good old days of the Mego Toy Corporation. It's 2012, and a small number of us are still talking about these guys to this day. 
So, hope you've enjoyed the latest Meagle Museum podcast. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some more cool stuff for you. In the meantime, this is Scott for Brian saying, collect them all. Museum Podcast. Brian and Scott sold separately.